Hey, deserving listeners, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to teach a class as a podcast episode. This occurred to me last weekend as I was teaching a class, and I thought this would make a good podcast episode as I was teaching. And I thought, well, I'd have to take all, out all the assignments, and I'd have to modify all the notes to kind of make it a podcast episode because, you know, podcast episodes, I just talk and talk and talk. But I thought, hmm, what if I actually experimented and assigned the readings to the listeners and assigned the assignments to the listeners, had the in-class exercises completed by the listeners as I went along? And I thought, why hasn't this occurred to me in my 12 years of being a podcaster? <laughs> So in this episode, that's what that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach a class to you, the patrons, that I taught to my graduate students last weekend. And I'm going to assign the readings. I'm going to have you pause the podcast so you can do the exercises. I'm going to modify it a little bit because there's a presentation involved, and obviously I can't uh, be there for a presentation that you're performing. But everything else is going to be the same. And by the way, this is going to be for patrons only. So if you're not a patron of the podcast, you won't have access to this episode. I apologize for that. So if you want to access this, become a patron of the podcast. This episode is going to be about attachment. And I have been rerunning a lot of the attachment deep dive episodes on Saturdays recently. So this is sort of a coincidence because I created a new class at my university that is a one-credit class, a one-weekend class on attachment theory and how to use attachment as a therapist, but also how to recover from your attachment insecurities. And it gave me a chance to boil all the deep dive into a, a very concise lecture, but it also has exercises. And I feel like I understand attachment theory better since the two years ago when I recorded the attachment deep dive. And so I'm really excited about this. And again, if you're not a patron of the podcast, go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast, and you can listen to this whole episode and you can follow along like a student. Now, you don't have to. You could obviously just listen to this and not do any of the assignments, so to speak. But I encourage you to do so. And then let me know at the end how things go. All right. So this episode is going to end now if you're not a patron. If you are a patron, it's going to continue. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. So first thing on the syllabus here is your book readings. So if you're going to follow along, which I encourage you to do, you know, just to experiment with it, this means that you're going to get out a piece of paper or write this down in your computer and you're going to buy these books and you're going to read them. And then you're going to come back this, to this episode and pick up where you left off. So uh, I had all my graduate students do the readings before the first meeting of class. So uh, get these three books. The first book is a classic by John Bowlby from 1988 called A Secure Base. It's called A Secure Base, Parent-Child Attachment and Healthy Human Development by John Bowlby. It's a pretty concise book. His other works are fairly complicated. This one's a little bit more easy to understand. And what I'm assigning in the book is uh, three different chapters. And so there's different levels to this. And some of you who are non-clinicians, I'll give you one set of advice. But you clinicians, I'm going to give you a different set of advice. Okay. 
So for uh, the this 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 applies to everyone is reading chapter two in A Secure Base by John Bowlby, which is the origins of attachment theory. In this chapter, John Bowlby writes about how attachment theory developed and how he de- developed it. And honestly, he's pretty humble about his role in it. He cites a lot of other contributors, but really he is the main uh, architect of the whole thing. But that's a good uh, primer on how attachment theory developed, which I think helps us to understand. Obviously, listen to all my deep dive stuff too if you want. The other chapter is chapter seven, which is the role of attachment in personality development. This chapter is for lay people and clinicians alike in that it teaches you how attachment and your early attachment uh, quality with your caregivers contributes, at least as John Bowlby saw it in 1988, to your personality development. And then for you clinicians, I want you to read chapter eight, which is how to use attachment in the therapeutic process. Now, if you're a layperson and you're particularly interested in how to engineer therapy to your liking, you could read that chapter too. But really, you could read this whole book. It's nine chapters. It's pretty quick reading. It can get a little complicated at time and a little bit in the weeds, but I think that it's a good exposure to where attachment theory came from, the language that John Bowlby uses, how it's based in science and observation, and all that stuff. And so uh, A Secure Base by John Bowlby, again, chapters two, which is the origins of the theory, chapter seven, which is personality development, chapter eight, which is how to use it in psychotherapy. The second book that I want people to consider getting is mainly for clinicians. So this is not for lay people per se, but again, you're free to get it if you want to. This book is called Attachment in Psychotherapy by David Wallen, published in 2007. Attachment in Psychotherapy by David Wallen, 2007. So the chapters that lay people and clinicians could read are chapters one through three. You can also read chapter four, but these are the first three chapters, and these are the chapters that are uh, an introduction to attachment theory and also to the foundation of the theory. I think it's important to understand where the theory comes from because I think it provides the feeling at the very least. The reason why – so I'll just tell you. I designed this course for therapists as a somewhat deep introduction into attachment theory. I wanted to teach the basics of attachment theory and the power of attachment theory, but I also wanted to expose these novice clinicians to a beachhead, if you will, on the vast landscape of theory and research regarding attachment theory. Attachment theory is often taught as this very simplistic thing. Some classes or programs, they'll teach it very briefly and you'll, you'll end up walking away going like, oh, attachment has to do with like early childhood parenting, right? And certainly it does. But the research points to attachment theory being pretty much all-encompassing of our psychologies, our development, our adult life, our relationships, our well-being, our psychopathology, just everything. And so these introduction chapters, both in John Bowlby and the Wallen book, I think give that impression and can give someone maybe some inspiration into some other readings because, you know, he'll refer – for example, in chapter four of the Attachment and Psychotherapy by David Wallen book, it talks about Fonagy and other people that are currently researching uh, sort of the the cutting edge of 
of uh, attachment theory. Okay, so again, Attachment Psychotherapy by David Wallen. I hope you're writing that down. You can buy probably a used version on, on, um, on Amazon, and you read chapters one through three and maybe four. All right, now, you also want to read part four, the entirety of part four, which is chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. Uh, this is if you're a therapist. So chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 are for therapists. This, uh, th- these set of chapters are if you're a therapist, how do you work with avoidant people, preoccupied people, and disorganized people, or unresolved people as they call it. So these chapters are more detail of as a therapist, how are you going to work with those different attachment styles? And again, it can get kind of complicated and I think provides a beachhead into the landscape of the research on it. And there are some paragraphs in this book that I find to be very inspirational, and I will reread them sometimes. These you know, certain chapters where you're just like, oh, that really puts it into words. I love that. Okay. Okay, so that's the second book. Again, the first book, Attach a Secure Base by John Bowlby, 1988. Second book, Attachment Psychotherapy by David Wallen, 2007. The third book and final book is the Attachment Theory Workbook by Annie Chen, who is a licensed branch of family therapist, I believe, in California. Annie Chen, and this published in 2019. This is called the Attachment Theory Workbook, Powerful Tools to Promote Understanding, Increase Stability, and Build Lasting Relationships. So this is a layperson book. This is a book not for clinicians. It's for lay people. And I don't know if it's the best attachment workbook out there, but it certainly will do. So instead of using one of the online tests, I find that this book walks you through all the steps. So you want to read the whole book. Pretty easy to read. It's, you know, it reads like a, like a workbook. It's very, very quick to read. And there's a lot of pages that you fill out uh, your answers to. You know, it, it assesses your attachment style. So chapter one is, you know, what's your attachment style? Uh, chapter two is for preoccupied people. Chapter three is for avoidant people. Chapter four is for secure people. Chapter five is how do the different attachment styles interact? And then chapter six is building a secure future, how to have earned security. This book is a little simplistic, and the book does not go into disorganized attachment or fearful attachment at all. I don't know why Annie Chen did that, but it doesn't go into disorganized attachment at all. But I still think it's a good book. And so for y'all who are perhaps disorganized attachment, uh, you probably already know that, or I hope you do. This book is still useful because the questions are still going to help you to differentiate different sorts of people, even if you're a lay person. And I think if you are, if you are a disorganized person and you take this, uh, the tests in this book, uh, let me know how things go for you because uh, I'm curious if it's completely worthless or if it's helpful. But if you're not disorganized, this book I think is a pretty good uh, tool to assess your, the full range of your attachment style. And remember that it's really common for people to be a combination of different attachment styles. It's really common for people to say, you know what, sometimes I'm secure, sometimes I'm avoidant, and sometimes I'm preoccupied given different circumstances, and that's okay. So don't worry about that, but but fill out that whole book. The book doesn't just go into attachment style. The book also kind of goes into like, 
what do you value in relationships? And I encourage you that you know you get this book and you walk yourself through it step by step. So again, just to review, you have A Secure Base by John Bowlby, 1988. You have Attachment and Psychotherapy by David Wallen, 2007. And you have the Attachment Theory Workbook by Annie Chen, particularly chapters one through four. Those are the chapters you really want to focus on in the Chen text. And of course, the Psychology in Seattle deep dive on attachment theory. I think if you were to do all those readings, listen to my 17-hour deep dive, I think you would be at a good place before entering into the rest of this episode. Now, you don't have to do that, but I recommend it. And I think we could have some fun with this. So it's probably going to take you some, you know, a few weeks to get the books, a couple weeks to read those chapters, and then you'll come back to this episode. So by the time you might keep this episode on your phone for a number of months, potentially. So uh, uh, go do that and pause it right here. All right, so you've read the readings, or at least you just decided not to, and here we are. So you've, you've read the foundation of attachment theory, according to John Bowlby and David Wallen. You've done the in-depth workbook by Annie Chen, the attachment theory workbook. Okay, so let me start from the very beginning. And like I was saying earlier, I find that the following presentation format is a distillation and a, a furthering of my understanding of attachment theory. I think in my attachment theory deep dive, I, I was sort of at a midway point in my understanding of attachment theory. And so I, I feel like I've, I've advanced. All right, so um, the first thing that we want to talk about are emotions. So, so again, have a pad and paper or have your computer out and ready to take some notes. So the first thing I want you to do, and, and I did this with my students, is to write down as many emotions as you could possibly think of. So pause the episode right here and write down as many emotions as you possibly can think of. Okay, ready and go. All right, we're back. You wrote down a bunch of emotions. Maybe you wrote down five. Maybe you wrote down 20. So we have things like sadness and anger and fear and hurt and pain and thirst. You know, I, I consider uh, in this discussion thirst to be and hunger and sexual attraction, lust, for example. These are emotions of a sort, which I'll get into. Jealousy, happiness, joy, contentment, love, surprise, disgust, anticipation, these kinds of things. You could Google them as well. Okay, so we have our list of emotions, and there's various different ways of categorizing things. You know, is anxiety different from fear? Is anger different from being irritable? You know, it's all just debatable, but, you know, we, we, can, we can sort of move past that. Okay, now the second thing I want you to do is write down next to all of those identified emotions that you, maybe you want to add a few as I listed some. I want you to think about what those emotions are telling you to do with your behavior. So let me give you an example. So when you feel thirst, what do you want to do? You know, you're, you're, you have that feeling. It's hard to describe. It's sort of you feel it in your mouth. And what do you want to do? Well, you are compelled to drink water. When you're hungry and you have that feeling of hunger, what do you want to do? Well, you want to eat. 
when you have sexual attraction and lust, what do you want to do? Well, you want to have sex. So those are the emotion and then the compulsory or the compelled behavior that the emotion is compelling you to do. And I want you to think about all the other emotions that you wrote down and think about what behavior the emotion is compelling you to do. So when you have that emotion, what behavior would sort of go along with that emotion or satisfy that emotion or whatever? And it can be behavioral or signaling or anything. But anyway, so pause the episode here and write down compelled behavior. Go. All right. So you wrote down those things. Let's review some of the possible answers. Now, some of you might have taken this assignment in one direction, some of you are different, but I'm going to give you the way that I'm hoping that you are thinking. So let's take sadness, for example. I'm sure a lot of you wrote down sadness as an emotion. Well, when we're sad, what do we do? Well, we might cry, right? So uh, we might also weep. We might want to talk. We might be in a fetal position. We might want to be alone. We might feel demor- We might sigh. We might want to isolate. We might want to not do anything. It might kind of cause us to feel a little depressed. Okay, so what about anger? Well, anger, we might want to punch something or someone. We might get hot under the collar. We might get real active. We might start yelling. Our our furrow, our brow would furrow. We might want to uh, do something to, you know, make the injustice go away or whatever. Okay. So, so let's talk about sadness. We are social animals. Perhaps the most social animal that's ever existed, potentially in the universe, definitely on our planet. This is something that I find myself telling people as if it is new information because it should not be new information. It should be quite obvious. But we are extremely social creatures to the point that we evolved to be so. Okay. So we evolved all these emotions, all these emotions that we feel, we evolved them. They're not inventions. You know, sadness isn't something that we invented in this generation. We evolved to be sad. We evolved to feel emotional pain. We evolved for to feel anger. We evolved to feel thirst and hunger and sexual attraction and jealousy and joy. We tend to look at these emotions like jealousy as some kind of thing we want to get rid of or anxiety is like something we want to get rid of. We can't get rid of it. It is our nature. We can't get rid of thirst. We can't get rid of hunger. We can't get rid of anxiety. We can't get rid of anger. We can't get rid of love or joy or jealousy. We can't get rid of sadness or depression. These are evolved experiences in the same way that I can't grow a third arm by trying to. I can't get rid of these emotions. Now, I'm saying this for some of you, this might be obvious, but for some of you, you might think of emotions as these pesky things because that's how our society tends to think of them. Okay, 
So we evolved these emotions. It's very clear. They're universal. Every, everybody from every cultural cult, you know, corner around the world and throughout time experiences some version of these emotions. They might experience them differently, which is interesting, but they experience the emotions. Now, why? Why would we as an animal evolve these emotions? Well, emotions compel behavior. So in the same way that we evolved the sense of thirst to compel us to drink, and those among us who did not have that feeling of thirst, that did not compel them to drink water, they died and didn't propagate their genes to the next generation. The person who did have thirst and did com- and that feeling did annoy them, you know, as they get thirstier and thirstier, it starts to do- the feeling just dominates and dominates and dominates their being and is telling them, go drink water. And as soon as they drink water, like, oh, it just tastes so, it's just such a satisfaction because we evolved those emotions and those impulses. It makes total sense. It's obvious. Okay, but I feel like it's not so obvious to us in our Western culture that these other emotions are exactly the same. We evolved to be sad. When something is going wrong in our lives, whether it is today or 100,000 years ago, we evolved the feeling of sadness. There are a lot of reasons to be sad, but one of the reasons is when we have loss, which I'll get into more later. But So we are having a feeling of loss, like someone died or someone rejected us, and we feel sad, and we might sigh, and we might hang our head, and we might sit down, we might cry, we might have tears, we might sob, we might be in a fetal position, we might run to our loved ones and want to curl up into a ball with them. You know, think about a three-year-old when they're sad. A lot of the emotions are more easily analyzable when we think of what does a three-year-old do when they feel these emotions? Because by the time we get to be five and six and seven years old, All of us have been so shamed for our emotions that we have a hard time expressing them in a natural form. A three-year-old, for the most three-year-olds, not all, are still free to express their emotions in its natural form. They are the people on our planet that are being perhaps the most healthy with their emotional expression. They haven't learned yet that to exhibit emotion is to be quote-unquote weak. And so what does a three-year-old do when they are sad? Well, they, you know, they run up to you and they cuddle in your arms or they, they scream and cry and tears are coming out of their face and they have red cheeks and they flop on the ground. You know, I don't want to go to bed. It's making me sad, you know, and it's very obvious. Okay, so do did three year olds just imagine that that's what they're supposed to do when they have that feeling? No, the feeling is evolved and we evolved a response in the same way that when we feel thirst, we turn to a river and drink out of it. The same way when we have a loss or we're disappointed or we're rejected, we feel sadness and then we do behaviors. Now, why do we do those behaviors? And I want you to think about that. Maybe pause it for a second. Why do we cry? Pause it for a second. So there are various different answers to this, but the answer that makes the most sense to me 
is we cry as a signal to others. There's a lot of theories about why we cry. Some people say we're trying to get rid of some sort of neurochemical, which I just find to be the dumbest <laughs> idea of all time. Uh, you know, another question is like when you think something is funny, why do you laugh? Well, you wouldn't say you're laughing to get rid of oxygen in your lungs, right? We, it's obvious that we cry and we laugh because we're signaling to other people. Think about when we evolved these emotions. And other primates have these emotions too, by the way. So we're talking the beginning of the human race 200,000 years ago or the beginning of primates, which was millions of years ago, or the beginning of social uh, uh, mammals, which would have been, I don't know how many millions of years ago, that we evolved a sad, a sadness emotion and a way of signaling to others because when we are experiencing loss and demoralization, we, we humans cannot deal with things alone. And we were probably never alone. Prior, and there are societies around the world today that are more natural than our Western society, where you know, imagine 200,000 years ago, we're on the African savanna. There's no walls. No one has their own bedroom. No one has an office. No one has a car. No one has a cell phone. You're, uh, you're just sitting there. You know, think about how other primates exist that you've seen on you know, the National Geographic show or something. You see chimpanzees or bonobos. And occasionally you might have one chimp who will venture a little bit away, but then they quickly go back to the, to the pack. It, you know, there's small groups and then there's, they con, you know, they sort of convene in larger groups of, you know, 30, 40, 50. So it's likely that whenever we felt an emotion in our natural state, as we were evolving, there were people around. And so it was very important for our survival that we signal to other people what we're feeling and that it is compulsory that it is not a choice because if you make it a choice, one, the individual might not do it, and two, children won't do it because children don't know choices quite yet, especially when they're like six months old. So when we felt sad, when we felt lost, so, let's, so let me give you one particular example, is when children were – so let me back up. We were prey – we were eaten by other animals. Some people tend to uh, – th- and I used to think this too because this is what I was taught. I was taught that humans were apex predators. We are not apex predators by any stretch of the imaginations. We certainly were predators of a sort, but we definitely were eaten by other animals on the African savanna when, as we were evolving. We were eaten by tigers and lions and panthers and pumas and hyenas and other kinds of predators. I mean, just think about us trying to uh, fight back from a tiger, even with the advent of fire, honestly. So what's the evidence? Well, there's lots of evidence, but one very compelling piece of evidence is to this day, there's a cave that isn't on the side of a mountain. It's like a cave straight down in the ground. And there's a tree that is sort of overhanging this hole in the ground. And when people excavated this cave, they found that there were just layers upon layers of human bones that had clear markings of uh, that they were prey, that they were eaten by some kind of, uh, some kind of cat uh, predator. 
you know, the scrape marks on the bones and the you know, all the kind. And so the very strong hypothesis is that this was through generations of hundreds and maybe thousands of years. There was this well, there was this cave, or I don't know exactly how the tree worked out, but there was a tree overhanging this cave, and the cats would catch us and drag us up into this tree. And they would eat us in this tree, and then our bones and body parts would fall down into this cave, and then that's where we're preserved down there. And so there's all this evidence that we were regularly eaten. Okay. So in the same way that other primates rely on the herd, and other kinds of animals rely on the herd for safety, we rely on our tribe for being alerted that a predator is nearby. We rely on the herd to fight back. Maybe there's if we all kind of band up together and say, no, tiger, you're not going to get us, then maybe the tiger will run away. We also need to pick up our helpless children. We have perhaps some of the most helpless children of any species that's ever lived. Our children are essentially helpless until 10 years old, but even 10 you know, there we don't have fully fledged humans until fifteen, maybe older. So there's a long time where we need to know when our children are in danger, and they need to signal to us right away. So let me give an example, and this is all just obvious evolutionary process because we're so dependent as humans, as adults, and particularly when we are children, we have a ton of noticing when we are not in proximity to our people. And not just any humans, but our tribe, and particularly our caregivers. So proximity, meaning physically close, emotionally close, when we are physically and emotionally close to our loved ones, a lot of emotions happen for the for good. We feel cared about. We feel relaxed. Our blood pressure goes down. Uh, we are uh, able to, you know, stress hormones go down. Uh, our, you know, parasympathetic nervous system all kicks in, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So when we are not in proximity, to our loved ones, our caregivers, all sorts of bad things happen to us. And we will feel emotion also, and we will, and that will, that emotion will compel behavior. So let's take a two-year-old toddler who is somehow left behind the tribe, or the two-year-old doesn't see where the tribe is. You know, it's, it, the child's in long grass, tall grass, can't see anybody. Well, what is the first thing that two-year-old is going to do? We all know what that two-year-old is going to do. And the two-year-old did not learn this. They instinctually do this. Like any other animal, we have emotional and behavioral instincts that are just in our DNA. So we all know what the child do. The child would scream, right? Now, what emotion is that, is that two-year-old feeling? Well, we could say fear, right? probably afraid. And so the child feels danger, not because there's actual danger around, but just because they cannot see their caregivers. And um, uh, uh, there's an input on the brain of, 
I can't see I can't see my caregivers. I don't know where they are. I don't know where my tribe is. And then an instant flood of emotion of fear, and you and the child fear feels the fear in their body, in their you know fight or flight response, in their chest. Their face probably gets real sweaty and crying and and red, and and their you know their head is on a swivel. Where, you know where did my parents go? So you, they, the child fear, feels the emotion and then, and then does what the emotion is telling the child to do, which is to scream and also to search. So the child instantly starts crawling around. You know, two-year-old kids could probably, you know, mobile, you know, on their legs. They're moving around. They're looking around. They're screaming, you know, ah, just the, you know, if you've ever heard a kid who uh, lost sight of their parents uh, you'll know what this is like, okay? So what does that do? Well, that locks in the adult instinct of noticing when a child is screaming and in danger, and all the adults have evolved this response to children crying that we instantly, through empathy, feel the fear of that child. If you've ever, if you've ever been in public... So you're at a festival or on the bus or something, and there's a two-year-old that starts to scream, your blood pressure will shoot up. Your cortisol and your stress hormones and your stress response will shoot up. Even if you're totally aware that that, ch- that, that child is okay, you see the child with their parents, and you don't know why the kid is screaming. You just know the kid is just unhappy about something. Your body goes into panic mode, but you know not to do anything because – you see that the parents are with that kid. But on the African savanna 200,000 years ago, if a child was screaming, it was probably for a good reason. At the very least, they didn't have proximity to the tribe. And so any of the adults or any of the older kids would run to that child's aid. And if you've ever – so I grew up in a daycare, and so I got very familiar with kids and they're crying. And it doesn't bother me that much to this day because I'm very acclimated to it. It still kind of gets to me a little bit, obviously, but it doesn't bother me the way I see other bothers other people, people who aren't acclimated to children screaming. I I find that uh, they're very attuned to this. And so you could be at a festival and there could be all this noise, all these people making all this noise, music in the background. But if you hear a child screaming, I guarantee you that will pierce through all the other background information and that will, that will be all you can hear. And why is that? Well, you would say, well, it's loud. Well, there's a lot of loud noise happening in that moment. We evolved to pay attention to children in the same way that ch- and, and have an emotional response to their signaling of fear in the same way that a child evolved the response of fear emotion and then screaming in response to that fear when they are left alone or when they're rejected or when they're just simply uncomfortable. So now a lot of this should be fairly obvious, but I feel like I need to sort of lay all this out for, you know, later discussions that we'll get into. So when you look at your list of emotions that you wrote down and you look at the responses to the emotion, when I taught the class, a lot of people would say, okay, well, you know, they would have these sort of layered, what I'm calling layered responses, which are sort of responses further down the, the, the flow chart, if you will. So some people would say, oh, okay, well, I wrote down sadness. And when I thought about the compelled behavior, I thought, 
to um, some people might say like to journal, for example, you know, when I get sad, I want to journal. Or when I get angry, I want to go on the internet or something, or I want to watch TV or whatever it is to calm myself down. So that's what I'm going to call a layered response or a response that's further down the, the, the flow chart. In all likelihood, in fact, I would almost guarantee it, there's something immediate in terms of what behavior is compelled when you feel emotions, but you've learned to subdue or suppress those responses. For example, when we get angry, it's very normal to want to get violent, whether it's to break something or to stand up and scream. But we don't do that because we get fired from our job or ostracized or something. And then when we suppress that impulse, when we're angry to scream or to beat on a table or to break something or to just run around and say how angry you are, when we suppress that, then we go further down the flow chart and we say, okay, I got to calm down. What do I do? I'm going to splash water in my face or I'm going to drink alcohol or I'm going to watch TV or I'm going to um, I'll, I'll, I'll journal so I can talk with my therapist. That's, that's a response further down the flow chart. So we have to reacquaint ourselves. And again, looking to three-year-olds is a good example of what's actually happening on, inside of us. That when we feel anger, all sorts of perhaps imperceptible somatic things happen. And the, the theory goes is we have an input. So someone uh, uh, hits our car, you know, we, let's see, what would be a, what would be an anger? Um, well, someone steals our purse, you know, we're walking down the road and uh, we're, we're, we have our purse and someone steals it. Okay. So right away, it, whether you notice it or not at the moment, you go into fight or flight, freeze, appease, or faint response. Your adrenaline starts to pump. Why do you do that? Well, we evolved a anger response to injustice. When a fellow tribe member or especially a rival tribe member stole something from us 100,000 years ago, those humans who got who who have who had a natural instinct of anger and then the compulsory the compelled behavior of fight that person for the injustice those people survived longer because they had things taken away less from them those humans who did not have an anger response and and thus the compelled behavior of right the wrong, right the injustice, you know, to anger is connected to justice. The reason why we feel anger is because of injustice. Now, now, when you think injustice, you think social injustice, which certainly can make us all feel angry for sure. And that's deserved. But think about it more ground level. You're on the African savannah 150,000 years ago, and your big brother takes your food. Well, you can't get sad about that. You can't get, you can't feel fear. Jealousy isn't helpful. What's helpful is anger because an injustice happened to you or to your child. You're taking care of your five-year-old child and a different family comes over and takes your food from your five-year-old child. Well, you have the instinct of somatic 
bodily anger, and then that compels the, you know, right the wrong, whatever you need to do to right the wrong, and then you feel less anger. So you're, you're walking down the street, someone takes your purse, and I almost guarantee you have a somatic feeling of anger, maybe a somatic feeling of fear as well, for sure, but if we're just going to go with the anger, and you want to run that person down, take your purse back, and smack that person across the head for taking your purse. That's the impulse. You want to run, smack, and take back. <laughs> and that's what you want. Now, you might not. You might be like, well, that's probably better. I just let the purse go. Who knows if that person has a knife? You know, that's your prefrontal cortex. But your, your body, that's what it wants to do. And that's what you probably did 100,000 years ago, naturally. That's what a three-year-old does. When a three-year-old is playing with their older sibling and the older sibling takes something from them, their food or their toy, the three-year-old gets angry and says, no, that's mine. You know, how many, how many parents out there of three-year-olds have heard their three-year-old say, mine? Well, that's the anger response. How does the child know to say mine? Because we evolved a sense of justice. Other, other mammals have a sense of justice as well. They do all sorts of experiments on other animals, and they, they clearly understand fairness, uh, other social animals. I think crows are even included in that, but particularly primates. And when there's an injustice, we get angry. And when we get angry, we are compelled to right the wrong. So when the three-year-old's food or toy is taken, they get angry, they, they grit their teeth, they clench their fists and they grab it or they chase the person down. And they grab it back and they push the kid down. You know, how dare you take that? Okay, this is universal. That's what we want to do. And when we have an injustice, whether it's small or big, we have the instinct of anger. That's why anger is wonderful. Without anger, we would be tread upon eternally. <laughs> Our ancestors evolved this, and those humans who did not have the anger response to injustice and then the compelled behavior of right the wrong did not live long enough to have children because they starved or something else was taken away from them. Their, their shelter was taken away from them or whatever. We are naturally angry. We're naturally thirsty. We're naturally lustful, usually. We're naturally sad. We're naturally hurt. Okay, so let's go through uh, the other uh, emotions. Fear, obviously, when, we're, when we sense a predator coming, then we feel fear, and a lot of animals will feel that way, okay? When we have a a branch that's stabbing us in the back of the knee, we feel pain. There's a pain response. And what does pain compel us to do? Well, it, com it compels us to do whatever we need to do to stop the pain. And if a branch is stabbing us in the back of the leg, we are compelled to pull away from that branch to stop the pain. It's all obvious, right? Sexual attraction. We are compelled, most of us, to feel lust and to want to have sex with someone else. It's obvious why we do that. It's the only way we can get our genes to, you know, propagate. Those humans who did not feel or those tribes that did not have enough people that felt lust for someone of the opposite gender, those tribes did not survive because they didn't have enough offspring. And notice that I, I'm wording it like there's a percentage because obviously there 
were in very there was very likely trans and gay people and asexual people under a hundred thousand years ago. It seems quite uh, I, there's no way for us to know. We don't have to have a time machine, but it seems quite clear that that was happening back then. But anyway, so I'm saying that of the tra- and there's different theories as that of just like well, maybe gay people had their romantic needs met a hundred thousand years ago. And they didn't necessarily have a lot of kids. Um, and by the way, gay people occasionally have uh, heterosexual activity and that might have propagated species. But anyway, the theory goes is that it takes a village to raise a kid. And if you're, if you're a gay man 100,000 years ago and in all likelihood you have brothers and sisters and if they have kids, heterosexual relationships through heterosexual relationships and you as a gay man – take care of your nieces and nephews, then you are propagating your genes. There's a lot of different theories as to this goes. But anyway, the point is, is that we evolve different emotions, jealousy, uh, joy. Why do we have joy? Why do we laugh? Why do we smile? Because we are signaling to our tribe that we like what is happening and we want them to keep doing it. You know, some happiness, why don't we just feel happiness on the inside? Why do we, why do we signal at all? When a three-year-old, remember a three-year-old, because adults learn to suppress their expression of emotion because of shame, but because capitalism has no need for expressions of emotion. But anyway, and paternalism has no need for it either. But a three-year-old doesn't know that yet. And so when a three-year-old is happy, you know it, right? Why does a three-year-old or why does any human have the feeling of emotion and the compelled behavior of smiling or laughing or, you know, joyous talking or whatever. Why do we do that? Well, we're signaling to other people, repeat this behavior, please. Any of you who have taken care of a child and you give them joy, you know, you're playing peekaboo with a one-year-old or you're playing, you know, throw the ball back and forth with a four-year-old and they're really happy, it is it is addictive. All you want to do is make that child happy because you did something that made them happy. They've signaled to you that it made them happy. And that, that energizes you, man. That like really uh, compels you to you know, keep doing it. So their emotion of joy, their expression of joy gets under your skin and you repeat the behavior. It's really quite obvious. So joy is, we have joy not just to make us feel good. We have joy to signal to those around us, please continue doing whatever you are doing because I like this. And sometimes it's mutual joy. Two people are enjoying themselves, laughing, another thing. Laughing is a signal like, ha, 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 this is great. Um, there's also like, and you know, humor has to do with like tragedy and sort. I'm not going to go into the weeds on that, but there's actually a lot to be said about the ev- evolution of those emotions. Disgust. What do we feel when we feel disgust? We, you know, what's the compelled physicality of disgust? We tend to repel. We tend to want to push away when something's disgusting. We go ew, and we want to move away from it. Why do we do that? We well, we clearly evolved disgust, and this probably goes back to our. Uh, you know, early vertebrates, that when we eat something that is probably poisonous, then we have an emotion of disgust and it, we need to get rid of that food because we need to get rid of that poison and we might even throw up. So let's talk about attachment. 
now that I've yammered at you for God knows how long about emotion. <laughs> but I, I hope it was worth it. Okay. So now let's go to attachment theory. And I have never really read this precisely. John Bowlby thought this. Darwin thought this as well. But I've never heard it described in this way or in this detail. So, uh, you know, anyway, I don't know if this is entirely theirs and I'm just repeating it or if it's a little colored by the way that I see it. But anyway, so when we evolved as non-social animals, so at some point in our uh, evolutionary tree, you go back far enough and we get to some species that we evolved from that wasn't very uh, wasn't very social and had children that were pretty independent pretty quick and so the emotion and signaling and social aspect of emotion wasn't important um, but we still had some emotions which are which are sort of the baseline emotions thirst hunger sexual attraction maybe anger but definitely pain, right? When a non-social lizard gets poked in the side with a sharp stick, they feel pain and they want to move away from it. So most animals, if not all, have nervous systems at least partly dedicated to the signaling of pain or heat or pressure or something. Okay, but mainly pain, right? So when we feel pain, we move away from it. Some pain, pain means something bad has just happened and you need to put a stop to it. That's what pain does for our compelled behavior. Pain is it, when we feel sharp pain, that's all we can think about. You know, pain is like pay attention to what's happening and stop whatever is causing this. Okay? And it, we evolved that. Those animals that did not have the capacity or at least enough capacity of pain and those animals that did have the feeling of pain but not the compelled behavior of move away from the source of that pain, those animals did not live long enough to propagate their genes to the next generation. Because when a sharp thing was stabbing them in the side, they either didn't register what was happening or they didn't have the compelled behavior to move away from the thing and they got a wound or they got eaten or whatever. Something bad happened to them and they didn't live. All right. So when we very slowly over millions of years evolved from a non-social species into a social species, this goes back probably before primates, we did not invent a brand new emotional system for the compelling of behavior socially. So as social, as social action of our, or, you know, of this branch of the evolutionary tree, and it probably happened in a def- number of different branches on the evolutionary tree, but uh, octopuses are similar to this, octopodes, I don't know how to pronounce the, <laughs> but anyway, the point is, is that they're different uh, emergence of this system of emotion to help us compel us to be more social and more supportive and more noticing of each other's states. But we didn't invent a brand new set of emotions. We just co-opted emotions that we already had. So when we were pre-social and we had a sharp stick in the side, we felt pain. 
as we needed to evolve into a social animal, as we experienced social hurt, it just co-opted the pain response because it served us in the same way. So let me give, so a sharp stick in the side, pain, notice the pain, move away, get this sharp stick away from, from you, okay? Feel that pain. When someone hurts your feelings and says, you look terrible today, or you're a terrible person, this is a social hurt, and we still feel the pain. We feel it the same way. When someone hurts our feelings, we have the same nervous system response or very similar as someone stabbing us in the knee with a sharp stick. Now, for a lot of us, that's obvious or some of us is less obvious. It's totally in our language. When someone hurts our feelings, we have the same word for hurting our feelings, which, of course, you can hurt someone's feelings and never touch them, right? We use the same word for hurting of feelings, social feelings, as we have for hurt of physical pain. Someone cuts off our toe, we feel hurt. Someone uh, hurts our, someone calls us a bad name, we feel pain, we feel the same hurt, we are hurt. And it's not metaphorical, it is literal. That's why we, you know, we, we you know, punch in the gut, uh, breaking my heart, because it, we, learned in order to compel the social creatures to bond and to take note of each other and to stay in proximity to each other because that's what helped us to survive as social creatures. We needed some emotional system and behavioral compulsions that are associated with those emotions that will, that will keep us together. In order for a tribe to work well together, you need to be nice to each other. You need to work cooperatively. You need to not hurt each other's feelings. You need to be fair to each other. And only then can you exist in a tribe, in a social group. And so when we very slowly evolved into a social creature, we just co-opted non-social emotions. This is why when people have lust or perhaps love for someone else, we call it a thirst or a hunger, because in all likelihood, the emotion of hunger and thirst were co-opted to compel us to have sex with each other, <laughs> you know, or to compel us to bond with another person. In the same way that prior to us evolving into a social creature, when a leopard, you know, for a lizard, when a leopard jumps out and is about to eat the lizard, the lizard sees the leopard, feels the fear, and runs adrenaline pumps, and they run away. And we have that too, but since we're social animals that slowly evolved into being a social animal, we co-opted the fear response, and we also have the same fear response to social rejection. When a lizard is socially rejected by another lizard, unless it's a social lizard, but just let's just say it's a non-social lizard, and it's rejected by another lizard, that lizard does not have a fear response because it didn't evolve to care about social rejection from another lizard. We evolved to care 
and our survival depended on us caring deeply about social rejection and about uh, loss of attachment and about being abandoned. And so the same fear response that we have to a leopard, we have to loss and abandonment and distance and social rejection. So 200,000 years ago or a million years ago as we were evolving into social creatures, if a, a group of our peers were laughing at us and making fun of us, we have tremendous fear about that. And the same, it's the same neurons that are present when a leopard is about to kill us because it's the same result. A leopard killing us and eating us, we're dead. Social rejection by our tribe, we're dead because we are going to be left behind. They're not going to support us. They're not going to signal to us when we're in danger and we're going to be left behind. We're going to, be, we're going to die of starvation because we need cooperation for food gathering. This, But we're also going to be left behind and predators are going to get us. So the same emotional intensity of a leopard going to eat us, that same just utter terror was co-opted to compel us to gain proximity and to be terrified and hurt by social rejection. If you were in my class, I would pause right now and ask you if you understood what I am telling you. (laughs) I hope that you do understand because I'm going to move on. But I'm going to detail all the different uh, emotions here. So sadness is mainly around loss and social loss when we when we lose people. So let me let me go back and Bowlby talks a lot about this. Let me go back to the kid that is left behind, two year old kid. So the first thing that a that a child will do when they're left behind is they search and they scream. So the child can't find their parents. So the first thing you do is they they look around. So they start you know they're they got their head on a swivel and they start crawling around, walking around, and they scream and they cry. Okay, they look because they're trying. If they see their parents, they're going to run to their parents. They're screaming and crying because they're trying to signal I'm alone to anyone that'll listen that's in their tribe, so they can come get them. If enough time goes by that the child is not found, what happens? And this is true for other primates. They will be very, they'll become depressed. They'll, be, they'll feel demoralized and despair. And this is the second phase of loss. Uh, it's not always with every loss, but with this sort of loss, it happens. And so what do, what do kids do? Well, they become very still and they don't cry out loud. They might sob quietly to themselves, but they're not searching anymore. And they're just quietly in a fetal position under a bush, just kind of just, just in utter despair. They don't know what to do. They're confused. They, they're, they're, they're not running around looking anymore. They've given up on that and they've gone to the second phase of despair. Okay, so why, why would kids do that? Why would you just hunker down quietly? Well, the reason is, is because if you continue to run around with your hands in the air and screaming and for long enough and, you're, and you can't find your tribe, you are very attractive prey for animals that want to eat you. And so 
the second phase, after a certain amount of time, it's better that you become very unnoticeable on the off chance that your tribe will come and randomly find you again if they backtrack to, to find you. You're better off being quiet than you are being loud. So when you first notice that you've lost something, you're better off being loud because in all likelihood they're nearby. But after a certain amount of time, maybe it's a half an hour, maybe it's a couple hours, you're better off depressed and demoralized and distressed and in despair and lack of motivation than you are running around. Okay. And then eventually either you die or someone finds you. Okay. So this is analogous to when someone dies in our life. When someone dies, our first response is to cry. Uh, uh, anyone who has a natural expression of loss will know this. Maybe to scream and wail, to just just scream, no, no, no. When I suddenly found out that our dog had died uh, a year and a half ago-ish, I was just repeatedly, loudly saying, I can't believe it, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. You know, it's shock, right? But it was, but I couldn't stop saying this thing. And I think it was this adult expression of wanting to just scream and wail. And Stacy was, was screaming and wailing and crying. So the first phase, when you're first faced with loss, is this deep sense of sadness and maybe even searching, you know, when we lose someone close to us, it's, it's common enough for us to search them. How do we search them? Even when we know they've died, well, we look to pictures and video and their Facebook account. We might want to find their body. We might want to go to their body to be with them. So that is our emotion of sadness and despair and searching and desperation. That is analogous to the two-year-old's response when they're left behind by the tribe. Because our bodies don't differentiate between death and being left behind. We just, we just have this very crude response to being separated from our loved ones. And when someone dies, we feel a deep sense of that separation. And we deal with it in the same way as if we were being left behind by the tribe. Then what happens later on after a certain amount of time? Uh, essentially, after our body realizes, look, you're not going to find that person, they're dead, you go into depression and despair, and you have a hard time getting up in the morning, you have a hard time motivating yourself at work, you have a hard time exercising, you have a hard, some people eat less, some people eat more, but point is, is that you're immobile, you have a hard time getting things going, and you're not screaming anymore, necessarily. And so this is analogous, not necessarily analogous, but is an expression of that phase that we enter into when we're two years old and we're left behind by the tribe in the African savanna 150,000 years ago. It's You're better off hunkering down and being quiet because someone might find you. And that means you have to lack motivation, which is the central feature of depression. We evolved to be depressed to save us from predators, essentially, when we have lost our tribe, when we've lost our people. Okay. So again, at this point, I would open it up for questions and probably get into some more depth. And I feel a little bit of anxiety not being able to do that with you, but let's move on. 
So again, we evolved emotions prior to us being social creatures in response to stimuli that compelled behavior. Think of emotion as the intermediary between noticing what's happening in the world and doing something about it. Purse is stolen. You notice that your purse is being stolen by someone. You feel the anger. That's the physical somatic response. It's in your body. Anger is not intellectual. All the emotions are physical, usually in your torso, but they can be throughout your body. And then you feel compelled to do something from that emotion. And we had that that re- that series uh, that you know system of stimulus emotion behavior well before we were attached we're well before we were social creatures and when we evolved into social creatures we co-opted those emotions to help us to be social creatures and to be attachment creatures and so otherwise if we did not have that system co-opted from previous emotions we would not survive particularly young children would not survive because they would be left behind and they wouldn't freak out and they would die. So we have evolved, in conclusion, we've evolved a constant awareness of our attachment status with others through our emotions. This is incredibly important. This is the main point. This is why I've been yammering this whole time. We evolved a constant emotional awareness of our attachment status. It was, it was compulsory. It was required and necessary for our species to be incredibly noticing when we are in proximity to our tribe and when we are not in proximity to our tribe as children and as adults because our survival depended on it. And how did we evolve the instincts to manage proximity? Through emotions and through the behaviors that the emotions compel. In the same way that we have evolved a constant awareness of our need for food and water and shelter, we evolved a constant awareness of proximity, physical proximity and emotional proximity to our people, the people we identify as our attachment figures. That's usually our family, our, our extended family, and our tribe, however we describe that. When we are in proximity, we have the emotions that make us feel secure and we're relaxed. When we are emotionally or physically distant from our people, we feel bad emotions. Sometimes it's terror. Sometimes it's despair and depression. Sometimes it's anxiety. Sometimes it's pain and hurt. And we feel a ton of negative emotions. We, have, we feel a ton of compelled behavior, whether we can act on it or not. And we feel distress. And that chronic feeling of loss, attachment, and proximity distance leads to an ongoing sense of distress and lots of bad things can happen from that chronic distress. Anxiety, depression, personality disorders, uh, physical ailments, sleep problems, addiction, all of this, tons of data demonstrating this. Now, I will say that since our society completely downplays this need, 
It's as if we live in a society that says, you don't need water. You don't need food. I know you feel thirsty. I know you feel hungry, but that's for the weak. Oh, look at that person that is drinking water because they're thirsty. How weak are they? And then you learn, oh, okay. So when you feel thirst, you don't, you suppress it. You shame yourself. And you also become very questioning of your emotions. You try to deny your emotions. Now, I'm using that as an analogy, but that's what we're doing to ourselves when it comes to attachment emotions of dependency and distress when we're alone and hurt when we're rejected on Twitter or something. And in a society where we're bumping into constant strangers online or in person, we are in a constant state of anxiety of, does that person accept me? When we evolved, and many societies still today, it wasn't until just recently, maybe past 150 years, that in some uh, industrial societies and cities did we become into contact with so many strangers. And guess what? We have all, all sorts of problems. And we have you know, political strife and violence and killing and depression and suicide because partly at least, if not entirely due to the fact that on a daily basis, particularly you know, pre-lockdown, we were in a constant exposure to strangers. And when we see strangers, we do not know if they accept us or they reject us. There's just no way to know. And a lot of our behavior the way we dress, the way we walk, you know, signaling to others that we're good people and that we're powerful people and that we have a nice car and we have all this jewelry on us because we're powerful and accepted and people like us. We're in this, you know, and then all the Instagramming and everything. We're in this constant signaling to other people that we're, that we're important and that we're good and that people like us because we are in a constant state of wondering, do people like us? But outside of an industrialized city-oriented society, you would never ask yourself that question because you would know from the day you were born that everyone in your tribe liked you and accepted you and, and stood up for you and maybe even put their life on the line for you. These people were in your corner, had your back, ride or die, literally. And there was no question. You didn't wonder. I wonder if... You know, Johnny likes me or not. Well, since you were born, you've, you've never been with, you know, more than a few hundred yards from Johnny. <laughs> and you knew that at the very least he didn't hate you, <laughs> but in all likelihood, he really liked you, really preferred you to the tribe next door and to other animals. And so when we have these questions of, am I secure? Where is my tribe? Where are my people? Do I have people that are loyal and dedicated to me? You know, these are not the icing on the cake things. These are fundamental things, the same as thirst and hunger. Now, logically, they're not, because certainly you can survive and have children and not have any friends. Certainly you can survive physically, I suppose, kind of, and manage to get married and have kids or even just get pregnant, you know, with, through artificial insemination, you could be isolated and still have children, right? But w our emotions 
are beyond our logical mind. Our emotions drive us to feel certain ways based on what's happening in our lives and compel behavior. And so even though in your mind you might be like, I don't really need other people. You might even say to yourself, I don't want to have kids. I want to live by myself. I don't want to have kids. In the same way that you could say, I don't want to have to go number two anymore. I don't want to have to eat food anymore. It's, it's a bother to eat food. It's a bother to have to go up and get a glass of water. I don't want to do that anymore. We all understand that that's not going to work. And the same goes for the most part. Obviously, without water, your, your body shuts down. But, but our body is flooded with all these distress hormones and emotions that mount and mount and mount that evolve into despair and depression when we are not in proximity to loved ones that we know in our bones care about us and have our back. And I'm not talking about like they live with you necessarily. I'm talking about you see them. (laughs) This is why when people ask me, you know, they're, they're living by themselves during the uh, pandemic and they're like, how do I cope with this? And I'm like, I don't know if you can. There's, you know, the notion that somehow you can exist in a box of isolation, even with animals, like you have dogs, you know, we evolved to need other humans. And for some of you, you might be thinking, well, I don't really like other humans. Well, it's possible it's because of trauma, right? (laughs) Um, So we are, we are extremely social creatures. Okay. So I want you to do an exercise and I want you to take out your piece of paper and I want you to do the following thing. There's three questions. One, identify or not three things to keep track of. One, identify a recent conflict with an attachment figure. So think about a recent conflict, emotional conflict you had with someone that's close to you. So, you know, the more recent, the better and the more intense, the better. Number two, what emotions did you feel? And think about the bodily sensations. Don't, you know, because when I ask people how they feel, you know, they'll be like, well, I was in this fight with my husband and I kind of felt like he was a big jerk. Okay. Get away from those kinds of thoughts. You know, there's a difference between thoughts and emotions. So get to emotions like hurt and anger. And also think about the bodily sensation. You might even feel it in your body as you remember the conflict, particularly if it was recently. Notice your chest, notice your hands and your heart rate and all that kind of stuff. So what emotion, again, emotions like sadness, anger, fear, hurt, jealousy, joy, love, surprise, disgust, and anticipation. What emotion did you feel? Where did you feel in your body? And what were those emotions is the third question. What were those emotions telling you to do behavior-wise in lieu of what we were talking about earlier? So identify a recent conflict. What bodily emotion did you feel? And what were those emotions trying to get you to do? And answer the question right away, but also think about if you were a three-year-old having that experience and that emotion, what would a three-year-old do? Okay, so pause it now, answer those questions, write it down, go. All right, we're back. So... I'm going to give an example uh, from my life. Recently, uh, I was – and this was a patron episode with Bob. I was talking about 
how I sometimes will overtalk for Bob. You know, like we were talking about how I'm a I'm a listener and a relater. How did I say it? I'm like there's listen and relate, and then there's listen and wait. And Bob is a listen and wait sort of person. Wait for me to ask him about his experience. And I'm a listen and relate where, uh, well, I'm sort of both, but I can definitely be a listen and relate where when someone tells me a story, I tell my own story as a way of relating to their story. And Bob is a definitely a listener and a waiter. And so sometimes when we're talking, he will get quiet and I get nervous and then I start over talking. And, okay, what's going, what am I feeling? So it's sort of a, a weird conflict, a weird distressful moment. Okay, what emotions am I feeling? Well, I'm feeling, in that moment, I'm feeling anxiety in my chest because essentially what's happening to me is I, you know, at a deeper level, I feel rejected. As Bob is not talking and he's kind of glazing over, I feel like he's rejecting me. I also and imagine and who knows if he is but that's the stimulus is that i feel like he i i i think he is rejecting me i think he's criticizing me i think he thinks it's a it's a terrible idea for him to be a friend of mine i'm worried about being judged i'm hurt that he's not putting effort into talking i'm i'm feeling pain that he's not engaging with me in an energetic way now, from his standpoint, he's just waiting for me to ask him a question, <laughs> but I'm waiting for him to relate and to you know energize himself in, and interrupt me. That's what I'm waiting for because that because that's the way I behave and, and relate in you know conversations. Anyway, so I'm feeling that in my chest. I'm feeling fluttery. I'm probably getting a little sweaty. I'm having a fight or flight slight response. Okay, so I, we have the stimulus, which is I'm noticing I'm over talking and Bob is glazing over. I'm having all those emotions of sadness and guilt and fear and hurt. And what are those emotions telling me to do in the moment? The emotions, they're not necessarily rational, but they're telling me to to gain proximity. That's the way I'm phrasing it. That's that's mo- mainly what our attachment emotions are telling us to do. Gain emotional or physical proximity to the attachment figure. Get close. Get secure. In the same way that a, a one-year-old is crying and looking for their parents and then they see their parents and they run to their parents or they crawl to their parents or they say, come here, parents, come get me. In the same way that as I'm talking and talking and Bob is glazing over, I have this, I have this emotional fear and, and hurt and shame and I want to get close to him emotionally. And so for whatever reason, my style of dealing with that emotion is to keep talking and to act like everything is fine. Because if I act like everything is fine, then he won't notice how terrible things are right now. And if I keep talking, eventually he will, he will, I'll win him over with my talking, which of course doesn't work because it's, it just makes it worse. So that's what I'm calling the layered response. Now, if I was a three-year-old or a two-year-old and I had those emotions, I would just run to Bob and hug him because <laughs> that, that's what two-year-olds and three-year-olds do when they're afraid of rejection and they're free to behave the way their emotions are telling them to behave. They just run to you and cry in, in your arms and say, love me. Don't you love me? 
you still love me. I love you. That's what we do. That's what I wanted to do with Bob in that moment. But because I have uh, this complicated flowchart of defenses and self-shame, I quickly squash that idea of just crying and running to Bob. And I have this notion of like, well, if I just keep talking, I'll convince him that he doesn't have those thoughts that I'm imagining he has. And all this is happening completely out of my awareness, by the way. It's not like in the moment I'm like, I'm having these emotions and I'm going to keep talking. It's, it's compelled in the same way that a two-year-old doesn't have awareness of the fact that, oh, your attachment emotions are kicking in because you are not in proximity to your parents and that's why you're screaming. No, the kid is just screaming. The kid doesn't have a choice. And so all this is happening completely out of my awareness and completely out of my choice. Okay, so as you think about your recent conflict with your attachment figure, that's the stimulus. That's what you're observing. And then your attachment assessment system is noticing what is happening and evaluating am, how proximal am I to this attachment figure? How close am I emotionally and physically? Am I being rejected physically? Am I being rejected emotionally? Because remember, we have instincts to gain emotional and physical proximity to our loved ones. And so anxiety and hurt and fear, all those things are going to kick in in response to distance emotionally or physically. And then those emotions in all likelihood, whatever you wrote down, in all likelihood, those emotions were compelling you to gain proximity to that person emotionally or physically. Now, in all likelihood, what you noticed and what you did consciously and what you, you know, did behaviorally was further down the flow chart from what your original response wanted you to do. Re- remember, you know, what would a two-year-old do? What would a three-year-old do? And so analyzing our conflicts and our attachment disruptions with people in this way is incredibly useful to me. This is where all this attachment theory and therapy and self-care it stems from is this understanding of how our emotions evolved, how they respond to different social cues of distance and rejection, what the compelled behavior is, and how we sort of mask that with various different layers and defenses that get in our way. All right. Now, let's go, let's go on to attunement. We've not, so we talked about emotions and, and evolution and proximity and how and – and so I hope I have properly convinced y'all that we evolved to want to be close physically and emotionally because if we did not have that compulsion, we would have died and not been able to have children. And we still retain that intense emotional reactivity that is completely out of our control, the same way that thirst and hunger is out of our control. And when we see it as such, then we can know what to do. You know, for example, in that moment with Bob, if I was to think in a way that was unaware of attachment, I would have thought, well, Bob's just being a jerk because he's pulling away from me and I don't like talking to him. So I'm not going to talk to him anymore. Or I might just beat myself up and say, like, Kirk, just stop talking. You, you, you talk too much. You're stupid. Instead of realizing, oh, I'm feeling distance at a fundamental level, and I'm freaking the F out, which is a part of my DNA. It's a part of my design, part of my evolved system. 
So I'm, uh, that's what's happening. And how do I get proximal to Bob? Well, and that will solve it because it probably will, regardless of how I do it, because that's what I need. That's what I want. All right, so let's go on to attunement, which is another important aspect to understand about attachment. And I've talked about this before, but just to go into some detail. So to be attuned to a child or to a loved one is two different dimensions. One is sensitivity and one is responsive. So one, you must be sensitive to your loved one. So when a child, so I'm going to stick to children for now, but this uh, you know, absolutely translates to romantic relationships and, and also work relationships and political relationships. But the first thing is you ha- the, the attuned caregiver has to be sensitive, meaning that the caregiver pays attention to the child, meaning that they put effort into looking at the child or keeping the child close by, hearing the child and, and actively paying attention. The caregiver notices the experience of the child, whether it's joy or boredom or fear. The caregiver not only pays attention, but also notices and interprets well the experience of the child, what's going on inside of the child emotionally. The caregiver is open to the child, meaning that the caregiver has a an open sort of stance that they're they're open to receiving whatever they are going to get from the child. They're not sort of defended or closed off on certain things like, well, it's okay if they're hungry, but it's not okay if they're sad. That kind of, You're open to whatever the child is, is doing. The caregiver is curious about the child's experience. The, the caregiver is like, hmm, I wonder what, you know, Jenny is doing right now. And particularly with younger children, the caregiver is almost obsessed with the child. And you'll see this with parents that are undefended. You know, good parents are obsessed with their kids, right? Their kid is the best. Their kid smells wonderful. Their kid makes the best sounds. Their kid is the best student in class. Their kid is just the best. Because obviously we evolved to be that way. It makes a lot of sense to compel bonding and paying attention to your offspring. Our neurons are instinctually obsessed with our own children. So anyway, but the bottom line is that when we're attuned to children, we notice them. We notice their experience. We most of the time understand what is happening. We see them and we know what's happening in their, in their bodies and in their minds, what state they're in. Okay, so that's part one. Part two of attunement is responsiveness. So the caregiver responds well to what they notice. If either sensitivity or responsiveness is compromised, then you have a lack of attunement. You have to have both. You can't just be responsive. You have to notice. You also can't just notice. You have to respond. So, for example, a child falls down and starts crying. And the father moves in quickly towards the child, holds the child, and says comforting things. So the child falls down, starts crying. The adult, the father, is in a stance of being sensitive and noticing the child. So the father sees the child fall, or or at the very least, hears the thump and then hears the crying, and then is responsive to that distress by closing the distance, holding the child, and saying comforting things. That is attunement. 
Another example, a child is getting bored or agitated. The parent notices this, interprets it accurately, goes to the child and entertains or gives them ideas and reflects the child's experience. Part of responsiveness is not just attending to a child physically, but also emotionally. I understand you. This is, a, this is the part of the emotional closeness that we're trying to get to our, to our people is – my dog's barking at God knows what. It's late at night right now, so it can't be a delivery person. Who knows? Maybe someone walking by. Um, in, you know, when we are children and, and when we're adults, we want to be close physically to, to our people, but we also want to be emotionally close. And that emotionally close can mean a number of different things. But one of the avenues to feeling emotionally close to someone is if they get us, if they understand us, if they know us, they know what we are feeling without us having, you know, because we have this big gap between our inner life and other people's inner lives. They can, those two things can never touch. And so the only way we can get them to kind of touch is through communication, by signaling our emotions, and then by our caregivers receiving that accurately and then mirroring back to us indications that they get what's happening. So the the child is getting bored and now she's like, oh, I'm so bored. I don't know what to do. And the parent comes over and says, okay, you know what? I hear you. You're bored. I know what boredom feels like. You're, you're bored. You want to entertain yourself and it feels, and you don't like any of your toys and no one's playing with you. I feel, I know what boredom, you know, whatever you do to your kid, you, you know, with your facial expression or with your words, you reflect back. That's a part of being responsive. So not, you're not only noticing the child's experience, but you're also mirroring and verbally or non-verbally communicating that you get the person. And so through that, you are emotionally closing the distance. You're, the child now feels proximal. And so, for example, when you are on the phone with your spouse and you're in a long-distance relationship and you're physically never going to be close, or at least not in the near term. So there's no way to get physically close, but how do you get emotionally close? Well, a big part of feeling emotionally close is when someone understands you. And this is what uh, Rogers, you know, Rogerian therapy is based on humanistic therapy and also interpersonal therapy, humanistic psychodynamic therapies, relational therapies are all based on this notion of the relationship being strong. And through an attachment lens, it's really quite clear to me that again, when we feel distance, we feel distress. And when we feel close, we feel relaxed. When we feel close to people, we feel secure and okay and good enough and okay enough and acceptable and safe. And when we're distant physically and emotionally, we feel scared and not good enough. We're going to die soon. Uh, we will start crying or yelling or screaming or searching or being in despair because we're giving up. So when you are in a long-distance relationship with someone, you're on the phone and they're thousands of miles away, the way you gain emotional proximity is through understanding each other's inner experience. Because we evolved to need that. When you are a two-year-old and you are feeling something, you need your parents to understand what you're feeling. And you might not have the words yet as a two-year-old to express that. And so you just non-verbally express what's happening and the parent knows what's happening. It's, it's critical as social animals that we 
are understood by our kin and that we understand our kin. Because when we understand each other, we know how to fix their problems. When a two-year-old is crying or say a one-year-old is crying and is, you know, pre-verbal, the parent needs to understand why they're crying. They need to notice the different ways the child cries or contextually what the child's probably crying about. Any parent knows this, that you learn the crying that a child has when they have an earache. You know the the crying they have when they're tired. You know the crying they have when they are bored or alone. You know the crying they have when they have discomfort like a poopy diaper or something. You know those cries or at least the maybe the nonverbal cues that they're giving off as well or the context. You get them. It's critical that you understand the inner life of that child because that child depends on you and we retain that into adulthood. It's, it's critical that other people understand us because our survival depends on people around us understanding us. If we don't get people to understand us, then they won't know how to help us in a, you know, when, they, when we need them to help us and we will die and we will not have children. And so those, uh, those humans, those social primates who uh, craved deeply understanding of those people around them survived longer and passed on their genes and their instincts of not just being able to understand other people. Because children at six months have a very good ability to understand their caregivers through eye contact and nonverbal Six-year-old, six-month-olds understand anger and disgust and disapproval and happiness from their caregiver based on voice and facial expression. It, it, it is instinct, and so that is what we need. We need emotional closeness. It's not a luxury. It's not something you get after work. It's not something that you say, "Well, I'll get it on the weekend." We need emotional closeness in the same way we need food and water and shelter. It's incredibly important. And when we don't get it on a constant basis, bad things happen. Anxiety, depression, suicide, demoralization, anger, uh, conspiracy theories, for that matter. Um, All right. So that's attunement. Being sensitive, noticing, and two, being responsive, mirroring. So attunement results in uh, you know, a lot of things, according to research, developing a secure base, as Bowlby told it, to, uh, worded it. You, you read that in his book, A Secure Base. Uh, developing good working models of self and other. So let me introduce that idea, uh, if you don't know already. So we have these things called working models. A lot of different ways of looking at their schemas and, and other terms, but working model of self. So we develop over time, very early in life, a working model of who am I? Am I lovable? Am I likable? Am I a good person? Am I acceptable? Do people like me? That's a working model of self. And the working model of others is, are other people trustworthy? Are they good? Are the, do they have flaws? Do they care about me? Are they uh, chaotic or stable? Uh, when, when they're upset, what are they going to do? What do they do when they're happy with me? These are working models, and we develop them very early in life. And when things go well, 
we develop a working model of others that is mostly good, but you know, also noticing that other people have flaws, but not a majority. You know, they they have like five percent of themselves are flaws. And if things go well for us, we have a working model of self that is the same, where it's like, yeah, I'm mostly good, but you know, I have some flaws. And that's okay that I have some flaws, but I'm mostly good. So that's a good working model of self and others. But you can have a bad working model of self and others. You can think of yourself as unlovable and unlikable and inherently defective. You can have a working model of others that is you cannot trust other people. Other people do not care about you or anyone else. Other people are mean or psychopathic or deceptive or dangerous or snakes in the grass, whatever it is, because that's what early childhood, you know, taught you was that's, that's what people are is they're bad. Okay. So that's working models. So when you have attunement, you have a good working model of self and a good working model of others because you learn, oh, people are attuned to me so I can trust others and I'm worthy of being attuned to. So I must be good. I must be a good person because I'm being shown that I'm being, I'm being treated good. So I must be a good person. And when I have an emotion, people will understand me. And when other people are upset at me, I will understand them and I'll know what to do. You'll feel competent You'll feel lovable. You'll trust other people. You'll trust that people will be there for you. When you are, you know, say you're in a long-distance relationship and you have a good working model of others. Well, let me give a different example. Your spouse comes home from work and they're in a bad mood. So they come, they walk in the door, and you just can, you just can tell, you know, that they're in a bad mood. So if you have a good working model of self and others, this is what happens. You say, oh, they're in a bad mood. Oh, that kind of bums me out. I don't know what to do about that. They're kind of being short with me. They're kind of being uh, rejecting of me. But I can. I know that other people are good, and I know that I'm good, and I'm worthy of love. So if they're treating me badly right now, and if they're in a bad mood, it probably doesn't have to do with me. It probably just has to do with the mood they're in. It doesn't have to do with me. And I trust that eventually they'll come around because that's my working model of other people is that eventually they come around because that's what life has taught me. And in that state of interpretation through your working models, you're not, you're not worried. Your attachment system doesn't kick in. Your proximity danger warning threat system doesn't kick in because due to your working models, you have now interpreted the situation such that there is no danger that they aren't rejecting you really. They're kind of rejecting you, but it's because of their job and they'll eventually come around. There's no danger. There's no threat. There's no reason to feel sad. There's no reason to get angry. There's no reason to be afraid right now because there just isn't. And that all depends on working model. Okay. So now you take another person that's raised without much attunement and they have a bad working model of self that they're not lovable. And they have a bad working model of other people that other people can't be trusted and that people don't eventually come around. Same exact situation. Spouse comes home, bad mood. Well, now you're saying, well, they're rejecting me. Why are they, why are they rejecting me? Well, they're rejecting me because I'm not lovable. And they're rejecting me because they've always wanted to get rid of me. They're rejecting me because they know how flawed I am as a human being. And they're also rejecting me because other people can't be trusted. This is the true self that this person is revealing to me. And 
their distant and moody stance to me is never going to end because that's what always happens to me because no one cares about me and people are people can't be trusted. So if you interpret it that way based on your working models, based on your past, now you're in panic mode. Now you're afraid and you're hurt. And what do you do when you get afraid and hurt? You get angry. How dare you, you know, treat me that way? How dare you make me feel these feelings? I hate you. Why do you always do this to me? Well, now you're insulting them. Maybe you're pulling away. Maybe you're being hostile with them. Now they are in a bad mood towards you. And now we're off to the races in terms of a big fight. And now you're in a situation where you might break up if you rinse and repeat this, right? And all this is based on working model, which is all based on attunement. When you are given attunement early in life, and this is all within attachment theory, when you're when your caregivers notice you, and by caregivers I mean parents or grandparents or older siblings, whoever, nanny, whoever it was that was your secure base, if hopefully you had one, they noticed you and they responded well to you. And that develops the working models and that determines how you feel in response to an attachment threat, how you interpret attachment threats, and how and the resulting compelled behavior. Because again, remember, when you feel pain, you have a compelled behavior to stop the pain, to stop whatever is jabbing you in the side. If there's a stick jabbing you in the side, then you get rid of the stick. If your spouse is jabbing you in the side with their bad mood, then you must get rid of their bad mood. You must stamp out their bad mood. How do you do that? Well, you tell them that they're ridiculous or that they're being unfair or that they're being stupid or that, or you pull away completely and you go out and you drink to get away from that pain. So it's all coming together, I hope, for people now. All right, so next assignment here. Next, next, so get out your piece of paper and get ready to pause the podcast. So th- these are three intense questions that I want you to take a lot of notes on, and I want you afterwards to discuss it with someone that you can. Any, all these assignments you, you can discuss with other people, but this one in particular is, is worthy of discussing with someone else that uh, you can discuss with. Maybe you can even get on the fan page and you know, have little study groups for this. So th- three questions. One is assess your caregiver's attunement to you as a child. And by the way, before you go into this, if you have PTSD and complex PTSD from your childhood, you want to work with your therapist before doing this because this can act- this can very much trigger you. So be responsible about that. I'm very, very serious about that. If you are unsure, get a therapist before you even go into this. Okay? Number one, assess your caregiver's attunement to you when you were a child. So how do you answer that question if you don't remember much? Well, do your best. Um, sometimes it's a matter of doing your best of, you know, well, they treated me this way when I was 15. I definitely remember that. So I can imagine the way they treated me when I was two. Or watching the way they treated other siblings when, you know, younger siblings yourself. Or talking to them or talking to other people around you. Or noticing your attachment style and sort of extrapolating from that the way your parent. It's, you know, it's a complicated thing. But anyway, h- however much you can, try to assess your caregiver's attunement to you throughout your childhood from zero to, you know, 15 and beyond, really. And really, I, I suppose all attachment figures, you know, 
nannies and aunts and any significant teachers. So that's number one. So write about that. The second thing you write about is assess your current attachment figures attunement to you. So current people. So if you're 18, then this might be your parents. If you're 45, then this might be your spouse and your friends and your children. You know, children also are attuned to their parents. So any close attachment figure in your life, a boss, a friend, assess those people's attunement to you. Do they notice you? And do they respond? Do they know your emotional state? And do they respond? Now, you might not give them a chance to notice you, but uh, that's all part of the thing. Maybe they are attuned, they're open, but you're not giving any signals of your emotion. But So that's a part of it too is attunement requires you to be signaling and willing to be vulnerable. But sometimes people are attuned to you even if you're not being vulnerable. They'll just sort of know. All right, so that's the second thing. So the first one is assessing you as a child, the attunement to you as a child. The second one is assessing your the attunement to you now from people around you. The third thing is assess your attunement to your current attachment figures. How attuned are you to your partner, to your children, to your parents, to your friends, to your coworkers, to people around you? Do you notice and do you respond? That's key. And how do you respond? That's key. All right, so pause the podcast, do that, and again, try to find someone to discuss it with before moving on. Ready, go. Okay, so I hope that that discussion and that exploration was helpful for you. Again, in class, I would field questions. I would hear, you'd hear from other people. Some people had caregivers who were very attuned. Some people don't remember. Some people had caregivers who were not attuned to them, either noticing or responding. Some parents are very good at responding but not very good at noticing. These sorts of parents will be emotionally neglecting even though they're very loving. So when they do happen to notice, they're very loving to you, but they're just not very good at noticing. These parents will you know, in the absence of abuse, they'll, they'll seem like very great parents, but they'll produce usually avoidant children because the kids have a very ongoing sense of emotional neglect. You can have the opposite where parents are very noticing, but they don't respond very well. They'll notice your emotional state, but they'll freak out and withdraw or attack you in some way. Uh, another situation people might talk about is, well... I feel like I'm, I notice people around me in my current life, what they're going through, but I probably don't respond very well because I'm afraid of messing up or it's not really my role in my family or I'm quick to feeling shame and so I pull away from people when I notice the state they're in or whatever. So there's a lot of different combinations, but you know, attunement is a very complicated thing. To be sensitive and noticing and responding and responsive and responding well is a very, very complicated, nuanced thing. And I hope that in your exploration, you got some sense of that. All right. So let's go on to the strange situation. This is when we start talking about attachment style. So it's important to understand where we got our attachment style language, which is from Mary Ainsworth in her research in the late 60s, 1960s. So the strange situation procedure was an experiment that she designed with her people. 
It's a 21-minute long experiment. You can actually go online. You can go on YouTube and just type in, you know, strange situation procedure or Mary Ainsworth strange situation. You can actually watch this uh, children being experimented on. And so let me describe. It's an eight-part uh, um, uh, experiment, and it's 21 minutes long. So it's it's long, but not too long. Okay. So the first thing that happens, and it's almost always with mothers. And by the way, in the Bowlby book, you'll hear John Bowlby when he writes, he refers to the parent as the mother and the child as a as a boy. It was a convention from back then that they often did. You know, they often referred to, uh, they often would land on a gender for a particular role because to them it was easier. I find it to be bothersome. But anyway, um, so there's that. But we also, in the Mary Ainsworth 1969 experiment, and when they did the strange situation through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and other times, and there's videos of that on YouTube, it's always a mother, and it's almost always a mother and a child. And the reason for this isn't because mothers are the main attachment figure necessarily, but obviously in our society, usually the main caregiver of a young child was the mother. And so... Uh, the experiment almost always has mother and child. Okay. But understand that this absolutely doesn't depend on the gender of the parent. Uh, you know, th- two gay fathers can raise wonderfully attached children that are very secure and have good working models and are, you know, really quite healthy. Um, gender, you don't need a mother is the point. But anyway, okay. So uh, the procedure, I'm I'm going to, Refer to it maybe as mother, maybe as caregiver. Anyway, okay. So number one, caregiver, usually mother, and infant, usually about uh, 18 months old, will enter the experimental room. And there's a one-way mirror, and there's a bunch of psychologists behind the mirror coding the behavior of the child. We're trying to figure out how the child responds to separation from the parent. Okay. So the caregiver and infant enter the experiment room, and the mother sits on this chair and the child is on the floor and there's all these toys everywhere. And the child then suddenly starts to explore the toys. And the child moves around the room, plays with the toys, and the child's behavior is coded. You know, if any of you who have had a young child, you know what this is. You you enter a playroom and your kid will want to be near your side for a little bit, but they see the toys and they slowly start to work their way over to toys and with before long, they're just playing with the toys. Okay, the third thing that happens is a stranger enters the room, uh, usually a, another woman. So a random stranger that the child does not know enters the room, and now the child's response is, is coded. What does the child do? And I'll get into that later. The fourth thing that happens is the caregiver leaves the room and leaves the stranger and the infant alone. This is why it's called the strange situation procedure. The child is now exposed to a strange room and a strange person. How does the child react? Again, I'll get into that later. Number five, the caregiver returns. How does the child react? Does the child run to the caregiver? Does the child not? Number six, the stranger and the caregiver leave together. They leave the infant alone. What does the child do? Number seven, the stranger returns and tries to comfort the child. How does the child respond to the stranger comforting them after being alone? And number eight, finally, the caregiver returns and we code how does the infant react. 
Okay. So from the description, you can see that, you know, mother and child enter room, stranger enters room, mother leaves, uh, stranger leaves, stranger comes back, or no, mother leaves, mother comes back, mother and stranger leave, stranger comes back, caregiver comes back. Okay. Each step of the way, at every change point, we're watching the child and coding their behavior. And here's what they found. There were, there were four different categories of children. Most children were what they called securely attached. And these were children who, when, they, when, the, when the child and the mother entered the room, the child – so this is sort of optimal behavior in a child, meaning that they have been taught prior to that moment that uh, they have a good working model of self and other based on their age. So the child will at first, upon entering a strange room, will be very close to the, to the mother and not want to leave her side, maybe for a minute or two, maybe shorter. And then ever so slowly, the child crawls over to the toys and starts to play with them. Ooh, toys. Maybe every once in a while, looks back at mom, makes sure mom's still there, goes back and plays with toys. The kid is happy. The kid is, you know, just doing normal toy stuff. All right. Uh, but when the... Uh, Mother left the room, or so when the sorry the stranger enters the room now at this point, what is the, what does the secure child do? Well, the secure child now runs to the mom because there's a stranger, and the child is like, "Who the hell is this person?" The child is seemingly not enthusiastic about the stranger, but not freaking out. The child is like, "Okay, there's a stranger, but you know, mommy's here." And mommy doesn't seem to be afraid, so I'm comforted by mommy. I'm no longer playing with toys. I'm now back to mommy because a stranger has entered, entered the room. Caregiver leaves the room. The child is sad and might start to cry and might even go to the door to try to chase the mom as the mom leaves the room. But the child isn't excessively upset. Okay, child's upset, but not excessively. Caregiver returns to the room. The child is pretty quickly calmed down by the caregiver returning and then pretty quickly starts to play with toys again. The stranger and the caregiver leave and the infant is by themselves. The, the infant, the secure child, will again be in distress. Where's mommy? And will cry, but not excessively. The stranger returns into the room and tries to comfort the infant. The child is not enthusiastic about the stranger. The child is not freaking out totally about the stranger, but the child is not comforted by the stranger. The caregiver returns. The infant is pretty quickly calmed down. The, the, you know, the infant runs to the mother, is comforted by the mother, and pretty quickly calms down. Okay, so that is securely attached. That is understood to be a healthy child as far as attachment goes. And what do we see? The child doesn't want to the child wants to be close to mom. When the mom is gone, the child is upset and signaling that they're upset, but they're not completely flipping out. Because part of them knows, well, mom usually comes back. I'm upset that mom is gone and I'm gonna cry and I'm gonna search for her, but pretty sure she's gonna come back. When mom does come back, I'm happy to see her. And I'm glad she's back, and I'm not angry at her, and I don't want to punish her. 
I, I'm okay. I'm glad. Okay, she's back. Good. All right. She usually comes back. She came back this time. I'm happy. I can go back to play with toys. I'm also safe enough to go play with toys because I know that I have a secure base to go back to if something bad happens, like a stranger entering the room. Okay, so that the behavior we see, and then we can extrapolate the working model inside of the 18-month-old that produces the attachment behaviors. Now, again, going back to my original evolution discussion, that the child, when separated from the mother, feels fear and hurt. And that, and that emotion, you know, so the stimulus is mom is out of the room. Emotions uh, are triggered by that proximity distance, by the distance, you know, noticed from the mother. Mother's out of the room. Emotion happens in the body, compels two behaviors, signaling of come back here and searching by crawling after her. And when she returns, I'm going to cry a little bit to make sure she understands that I was sad, but I also smile and relax as a way of, of exhibiting that my emotions have now been uh, soothed because I, am, I have evolved to be proximal to my caregivers. Okay, so now let's go to uh, the second group of children, which, we will, which was called uh, ambivalent or resistant or anxious or what I call preoccupied. I use my own – so there's a lot of different words that we use for the insecure attachment styles. I use preoccupied, avoidant, and disorganized because I find them to be the best, most descriptive words. But there are other words for it. You know, there's avoidant, dismissive. There's ambivalent, resistant. You know, there's all these different words. But uh, I, I'm going to use these words because I find them to be best words. Okay, so – meaning that they're the most descriptive, most obvious. Okay, so the second group of children that they have Mary Ainsworth observed was called preoccupied. And this was about 15% of the infants in the studies. And it depends where you're studying around the world, by the way. But in their study, they found that American kids, 15% were preoccupied. So these children were, when they entered the room with their mother, they tended to stay very close to the mother and not venture off into the room and not play with toys. Maybe a little bit, but not a lot. Not as, not as much as the secure kids. When the mother left the room, the child completely freaked out, was much more visibly upset and in distress, and was also quite afraid of the stranger. When the mother returned, the child was not as comforted by the return of the mother. So the mother returns, and with the secure kid, the secure kid was pretty quickly soothed by, oh, okay, mom's here. I run to mom. Mom picks me up. All right, crying stopped. I, I still have some tears on my cheeks, but, you know, the crying has stopped. Why? Because I feel better. Mom's returned. To the preoccupied kid group, when mom returned, the crying did not stop. The crying continued well beyond after reunion. The child might also even be hostile, might even punch the mother to punish the mother for leaving. Or the child might refuse comforting because they're so angry. They're crying, oh, but where's mom? Mom comes back in and mom goes to child because child doesn't want to go to mom because they're pissed off. The, the mother tries to pick up the child and the child says, no, you can't pick me up. Because they're angry and hostile. They want to punish the mother for being gone. They might push them away or they might be extremely clingy. So there's that – and that's why they call it ambivalent or resistant because it's like 
the child was either extremely clingy and like, oh, my God, never leave me, or like, how dare you leave, you know, real hostile and angry. So that was a preoccupied group. These kids experienced, regarding attunement, inconsistent attunement, vacillating between getting some of their needs met and some lack of attunement state, either just neglect or abuse. So when you have inconsistency in the first three years of life, you, as a child, will tend to develop preoccupied attachment, which is that behavior, which, again, we can translate into adult behaviors, which I'll get into in a second. Okay. So the third group that they found with the children, again, about 15% studied in in the United States in in their various studies, was that they found uh, that these children, they enter the room with the mother and they instantly play with the toys. They don't, they don't, you know, to the secure kids, they would stay close to mom and slowly venture off to the toys. Well, this group of kids, the avoidant kids, as soon as they entered the room, they went straight for the toys. They didn't rely on the secure base first and venture off to Toyland. They just went straight to toys. When the stranger entered the room, they didn't really care. When the caregiver left, when the mother left, they didn't really care. They kind of cared, but they didn't really care. They might not cry at all. They might not even notice or at least give a signal that they notice. So the kid is playing with toys. Stranger enters the room. They're like, huh, they keep playing with toys. Mom leaves the room. They're like, huh, mom left. Anyway, back to the toys. Mom comes back into the room and they're like, huh, mom returned. Anyway, they seem indifferent. They're dismissive of attachment. They're avoidant of attachment. They might not have eye contact with the parents because with the secure kids, as soon as mother returned, lots of eye contact. The avoidant kids, not eye contact. Preoccupied kids, eye contact. Avoidant kids, lack of eye contact. They might not ever seek proximity to their caregivers. So just a fairly lack of emotion and noticing of proximity threats or distance or anything. They just seem to not care. Now, these kids, as I was saying earlier, they experience consistent emotional neglect early in life. So for these kids, so, so for these kids when they are signaling and you know, they have their emotions of attachment threat that are happening all the time, especially when you're young, and you're signaling, hey, I'm lonely. Hey, I want you to pick me up. Hey, I want you to notice me. Hey, I'm in distress. They're, they have a, a very uh, consistent sense that people are not going to respond. Now, again, that could be due to lack of noticing, lack of, of uh, being sensitive, and or a sense uh, or, and or a lack of responding well. So it could be either or both. So you can have, again, parents who are very loving, and when they happen to notice, they're very caring, but they don't notice very much. And this will result in typically ongoing emotional neglect, which produces avoidant children. So these children learned, oh, I can't depend on other people. And so, you know what, I'm just going to turn off my attachment system needs, and I'm, I'm going to do my best not to notice them. And neurologically, I'm not going to develop those pathways. So consciously, I don't even necessarily notice my attachment needs. They're down there, but I'm not really noticing them. And I'm not going to have eye contact because what's the point? There's, there's no point in eye contact. It's just going to make me feel vulnerable and upset. So I, I, I'm just going to be on my own. I'm pretty good on my own. 
avoidant people tend to develop a pretty good sense of self, a pretty uh, not sense of self, but a pretty good working model of self where they working model of self is different from sense of self. Some sense of self is knowing who you are and what you need and avoidant and preoccupied people both have a limited uh, sense of self. Anyway, so preoccupied people, again, getting back to them, when they were being raised, it was inconsistent. And so they learned, huh, sometimes I get my needs met, sometimes I don't. If I game the system right, I can get a little bit more of my attachment needs met because it's possible. And so I'm going to be hypervigilant and paying very close attention to my caregivers. And I'm going to try to game the system by being demanding, by signaling my emotions, and literally feeling my emotions more intensely than other people. And neurologically, I win if I feel my emotions bigger. So whenever I'm sad and someone hurts my feelings, I'm going to feel it times 10. And it's not a conscious choice. You understand that this is a neurological development that happens for children. They're, they're rewarded for having intense emotions, these children. Okay, the fourth category, the final category, and this was observed by Marion Solomon in 1990, not by Mary Ainsworth. And this is about 4% of infants, pretty small group. These children we call disorganized or fearful or unresolved. And so, so getting back to preoccupied and avoidant before we go to disorganized, uh, when you're dealing with ongoing attachment threat and proximity problems, you are forced to deal with it in some way. To the avoidant person, they develop a coping style of avoidance where they just avoid their feelings, they avoid other people, they just give up. Because to be vulnerable and to depend is too painful, and so they just turn away. It, they're still in a lot of distress, but you know they can find an equilibrium. They can find a, a stable emotional space by just turning away completely. It's just like, it's better off if I just avoid the whole thing. To the preoccupied person, the way that they, they deal with it is by paying very close attention to their caregivers and gaming the system and amping up their emotional signaling and feeling by essentially exaggerating neurologically their attachment emotion system and, and emotions. And so they have a way and they find an equilibrium that way. They get some of their needs met that way. Okay. So to the preoccupied and avoidant person, they can find equilibrium. It's not great. You know, there's a lot of suffering in avoidance and preoccupation, but, but there's some level of stability to their stance and to their emotional and attachment life. To the disorganized child, these children are typically abused by their loved ones and, and not just abused, but terrorized. The young infant is made to feel deeply afraid of at least one of their caregivers. And so what happens to these children, and so getting back to avoiding preoccupied and secure for that matter, all those kids could also be quote-unquote abused. So I don't want to just say disorganized kids are, are the only abused category, but the experience to the child is very particular. To the child, as they're afraid of whatever, because children are frequently afraid of various things, they have an instinct to turn to their caregivers for comfort in the same way that when the stranger entered the room to the secure child, that secure child ran to their parent. And when the parent left the room and the parent returned, the child ran to the parent. It's returning to that secure base because emotionally when I am close to my mom, because she raised me well, I feel so much better when I'm close to her emotionally and physically. Okay. 
So when the child, the one-year-old, the two-year-old, is afraid of whatever, the child has an instinct to turn to their parents and be like, oh, you're my secure base. You're my people. I've imprinted on you as my caregivers, my parents. I feel this instinct to turn to you. But in that instant, as you turn to your parent, you quickly realize they are the threat. They are the danger. My parents, because of past abuse and and the fact that they've terrorized me my entire life, I both want to run to them because that's my instinct, but I also want to run want to run away from them. The parents are both the home base and the threat, and the child doesn't know where to go. They're stuck between two instincts. All children have an instinct to run away from threat, to run away from strangers, to run away from danger, and to run toward their parents. But what if the parents are the danger? What does the child do? The child can do nothing. The child is stuck. The child develops what we call a disorganized response because they're stuck between a rock and a hard place and there's nowhere for them to go and they have intense emotions, as any child does really, but particularly them, and they have no home base They can't rely on the self. They can't rely on their parents. They don't want to run away from their parents because their parents are home-based. They can't run towards their parents because their parents are the danger. Their parents are the terror. And so the observed behavior that they would see in children is that when the parent returned, the child would uh, do various different things. The child might look to the parent and go, oh, home base is back. And they might take one step forward towards the parents but then very quickly freeze and might scream or they might drop to the floor because they're stuck between two impulses, between two very, very strong. The impulse of a child to run away from danger is very strong. The impulse of a child to run towards their caregivers, their loved ones, is very strong. What do they do when no movement will get them away from danger and toward home base? Well, They'll freeze in place, they'll drop to the ground, they'll run toward and then run away. They'll cover their mouth with their hands as if they want to scream. They might fall into a daze, they might freeze like they're comatose. Those are the behaviors that we would see in the child. They might be very emotional and then completely numb. Those are the behaviors we would see in this, this fourth category of child, the disorganized child. Now, among all infants, some studies found that 4% of kids exhibited this. Other studies show that among all infants, there are in all toddlers, 15%. So maybe a lot higher degree. When we look at children of adolescent mothers, of teen mothers, in a study by Broussard in 1995, they found that it was 30% of children. So when you have teen mothers you're a lot more likely to have a child with disorganized attachment because as a teen mother, you're more likely to lack the ability to be attuned to your child effectively. But what about children who were uh, in children, uh, uh, children of mothers who were abused by partners and by their parents and who have a DSM diagnosis? So they, So they got a bunch of mothers of young children that 
reported they were abused and who had at least one DSM diagnosis. According to this one study, 75% of those children exhibited disorganized attachment. So what we see here, according to the research, that the, the demographics of the parents are highly predictive of the attunement level to the child and thus the attachment style of the child. And this is whenever I get on my soapbox and I say, we need to be teaching attachment to people throughout their schooling as they grow, grow up. We need to be teaching it to first graders on a first grade level. We need to be teaching attachment to teens. We need to be helping young parents understand attunement very well. We need to be doing, we need to support these people so that economically they have the space to actually have the emotional and physical space to attune to their kids. You know, when you have economically stressed groups of people, they don't have time to, to, to attune to their kids. They're at work the whole time and they're stressed out when they get home. So when you have the, these, this problem of attunement from the first few years of life, those children have have already set in motion personalities that will result in all sorts of terrible things. Not necessarily, of course, but the very least a lot of suffering for them. Okay, so that's the strange situation procedure, Mary Ainsworth, late 60s research. Four groups, secure, preoccupied, avoidant, and disorganized. Now we have some DSM diagnoses. I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to get bogged down, but there are some designations, reactive attachment, disinhibited social engagement disorder. Um, These are actually pretty rare, and they don't really correspond with an attachment style. It's kind of weird, honestly, that for whatever reason, these are the only disorders in the DSM. The thing I'll say is that of all the conditions that can result from attachment problems, a, a very, very small sliver of those of those conditions as a result of attachment problems are listed in the DSM. We do not look to the DSM as a guide for understanding the conditions that result from attachment problems, okay? So let's divorce ourselves from the DSM as attachment thinkers. All right. Now, what about translating childhood attachment style to adult? Some studies show that there is a pretty robust connection between your childhood attachment style and your adult attachment style, but it can change. And some people say, well, that means attachment doesn't have validity. Well, I say that, and other researchers will say, well, it's because attachment isn't set in stone. You could, for example, have disorganized attachment at the age of 18 months, but then after that be uh, fairly attuned to well enough and experience relatively low abuse from that point forward and have secure attachment by the time you're 25 or vice versa. You could you could exhibit secure attachment at the age of one and a half and experience divorce and trauma and bullying at school and develop preoccupied attachment by the time you're 25 as an adult. Along those lines, you could go to therapy at the age of 35 to 45 and become not avoidant and become secure or at least exhibit secure attachment style as an adult, all right? Okay, so now let's talk about adult attachment styles. And this is where your workbook comes into play. You know, the Chen workbook, attachment theory workbook, your, your work in that book. All right, so let's talk about the different insecure attachment styles first. 
All right, so let's talk about avoidant insecure attachment style first here. And as I describe this, think about yourself and or think about someone or multiple people in your life who you think might exhibit avoidant attachment. And again, remember these people generally as children experienced a ongoing emotional neglect of some degree. Now, again, remember I'm saying they experienced it that way. This is why you can have different children in the same family have different attachment styles because children based on their disposition might interpret things differently. You know, say you have a very extroverted child and they have a lot of need for attachment security and attachment uh, activity as a young child. Well, if there's general neglect, then they're going to feel it harder than if a child is born who has a little bit less need for attachments in their life. Now, I want to be careful about saying that some people are born without any attachment need because no child is born without that unless there's something seriously wrong. But there might be a little bit of a turning of the knob one way or the other from five to four or five to six, and that can influence the way a child experiences their caregivers, and thus you have the same parents producing different attachment style in different children. Okay, so but we're talking about adults now. So for avoidant people, these were people that experienced ongoing emotional neglect as a child and probably throughout their life, and they learned that and again, remember that attachment styles are not fixed in stone, and you can have a mixture of different depending. And it's just a style. You know, when you have avoidant attachment, when you're diagnosed, so to speak, with avoidant attachment style, it's not a biological thing uh, entirely. And it's just a way of dealing with things. And so when you're trying to get your attachment needs met and you're trying to mitigate the attachment fears and hurts, you, if you are labeled avoidant attachment, you tend to deal with those attachment emotions in an avoidant fashion. So you feel emotional or physical distance from other people, rejection, neglect, abandonment, whatever. Your general way of coping with it that tends to work for you to reduce your distress is to just say, you know what, I don't need other people. I'm good on my own. I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to set myself up for ne for being neglected. And so I'm just going to depend on myself. Okay, so that's avoidant people. So these people, and I'm going to list a whole bunch of things here, and uh, avoidant people will tend to have at least some of these, if not all. They tend to think of themselves as very independent, very independent people. They might say things like, I don't need relationships to make me happy. I'm fine on my own. They very much dislike needy people. They tend to lack eye contact in general. Again, because early in life they learned, well, why look if I'm going to be disappointed? And looking into someone's eyes is vulnerable, and I'm not comfortable with that. They Avoidant people tend not to ask for help in any arena. They generally feel uneasy when they're close to others and often have the urge to run away or to break up or something. They have trouble being vulnerable. They'd rather uh, accuse or run away from other people when they, when they feel vulnerable. And this is the key, if, if I might pause here for a second on this list, is the key understanding of, of avoidant people is that they are terrified of vulnerability. 
terrified of their emotional needs, terrified of their emotional reactivity to abandonment and distance. And the corrective experience is helping them to be vulnerable and then rewarding that, meeting their needs. That's the key. So if you are avoidant, the key corrective experience that you want to create in your life is being vulnerable with people that you can trust. They're less likely to go to therapy because, again, they're independent. And in therapy, they tend to not really open up or they tend to ramble and not let the therapist in. They might talk about having a hard time letting their walls down. They often have their own routines and are not comfortable adjusting it for other people. When they're dating someone who pressures them to get closer, they are more likely to become turned off by that and end the relationship quickly. They like things to be done their way, and they're often rigid in that way because from a very early age, they had to do things on their own and aren't really used to incorporating input from other people. They worry that if they are honest, others will reject them. They will sometimes cope with ongoing distance, created by them mostly, by drinking more than average or using marijuana more than average. More, they're more likely to be oblivious to the problems in their relationships. You know, they're more likely when, – when, when, when they come to therapy, if you have an avoidant person or preoccupied person, the preoccupied person will be like, oh, my God, there's all these problems. And the avoidant person will be like, I don't know. It feels like things are fine. Um, they are more likely to think of themselves as superior to other people. This is where narcissism comes in. Not all avoidant people are narcissistic, but they're more prone to it. They can become attracted to needy people because needy people will bridge the gap that they need to be bridged. They, you know, avoid the, the way I frame and the way I conceptualize avoidant people is underneath their avoidant veil is an extremely preoccupied person. It's easy to look at an avoidant person and say, oh, they don't have needs. No, it's quite the opposite. They have a tremendous amount of unmet needs. In fact, they probably have more unmet needs than preoccupied people because remember, preoccupied people at least reach out to others. Avoidant people gave up when they were two years old, one years old. They turned away from people a long time ago, and so they, they have a lifetime of needs that are screaming underneath the surface of avoidance. They might not be aware of it, but it's down there. And so avoidant people 100% need to be close to others, but they don't know how to do it because of all the reasons I said, and they are attracted to preoccupied or quote-unquote clingy or needy people or pursuers because they need those other partners to bridge the gap. They often have good self-esteem, but generally see others as incompetent. When they move, you know, when they're moving from house to house, they tend not to ask for help, which is kind of a specific marker that I see sometimes. When they're sick, they're less likely to ask for help or even go to, to, a, physici to a physician. They will seem to others as being aloof, independent, self-sufficient, self-assured, quote-unquote strong. They'll seem emotionally strong. They'll seem distant and cold, reserved. They might seem like they're a robot. They might seem like they don't care about you. They might seem commitment-phobic. They're actually rejection-phobic. And in extreme cases, they might be invisible, like no one is there. Or in extreme cases, they might be narcissistic. All right, so that is an avoidant person. They learned long ago to turn off, as best they could, their attachment emotional system. Their needs are, are still happening down there, but they turn off their ability to notice what's happening. And thus, they have a harder time 
understanding their emotions. They have a hard time identifying their emotions. They often think they don't have emotions. A lot of avoidant people will say, I don't have emotions. I'm unemotional, which is, of course, impossible. And they will have a hard time remembering things because it's easier if you forget. It's even easier if you don't encode memories. And this is what avoidant people are prone to, according to research, is that early in life, they learn, well, if I remember things, if I encode memories, then I'm going to remember all this neglect and all the you know, disappointment of my attachment figures in my life. And so I'm just going to stop encoding memories. What's the point? And so avoidant people tend not to remember much. Avoidant people, when you ask them about their childhoods, you know, at first when they, when they don't have a lot of awareness, avoidant people will say, my childhood was fine. You know, you say, well, like, well, how fine? Well, you know, my parents are good. Everything was fine. Because one, they don't really remember much about their child because they didn't really encode much because they said, what's their, and this was neurological, this is all unconscious, you know, what's the point? But second, because they avoid their feelings throughout their life and don't really notice when they're being mistreated, don't really notice when they're being neglected. But they also don't really notice when they're being loved because, again, they turn away from other people. And so when they look back on their life, they just see kind of a bland fineness about things. And so that's kind of a common response that adults will say about their child. They'll be like, yeah, that's fine. Um, okay, preoccupied. Now think about someone in your life or yourself that's preoccupied as I go through this stuff. So preoccupied people, again, they had inconsistent parenting and they learned they had to amp up their emotions, amp up their attachment reactivity and game the system through clinginess and demands and anger and desperateness. So preoccupied people think about relationships a lot. Uh, as a specific behavior, they might text people a lot and get upset if you don't text them back very, very soon. They might remember every negative thing that everyone has ever done to them. I mean, I'm sort of exaggerating, but preoccupied people are more likely to hold grudges and remember bad things that have happened to them. They tend to catalog things that you've done to them that were bad. They do this because, again, they're very focused on relationships. And when they're hurt, their hurt is felt times 10. And their memory, so again, for avoidant people, they learn subconsciously to turn off their encoding of memories relationally. And preoccupied people learned to remember things very quickly and very well. Because the only way you can game the system is if you remember the system. They can make other people walk on eggshells. It's a very common experience for being in a relationship with someone who's, who's preoccupied. You feel intimidated emotionally. You feel like you're walking on eggshells. Uh, preoccupied people tend to rebound into relationships very quickly, depending. They think a lot about their romantic partners that they're involved with, even if their relationships are going well. As clients, they're very, they're very likely to come to therapy, preoccupied people, and they might talk exclusively about their partners. They likely want to become friends with their therapist. Uh, not always. They're more likely to have erotic or uh, po you know, extreme positive transference to the therapist. They're likely to be jealous. They're more likely to be jealous. They frequently feel distant and alone, and they don't like it. You know, they very frequently, if you ask a preoccupied person, do you feel like people are close to you? You know, if they really are being honest, they're, they're likely to say, well, I, I wish I had more closeness, is, is what they will say. 
They tend to stay in bad relationships longer than they should. They are often worried or convinced that they care more about their spouses than their spouses care about them. This is, this is a huge hallmark, and if you're going to ask one question to figure out if someone's preoccupied, it's this. It's that they very often feel that they are more in love or that they care more or more dedicated or something with their partner than their partner is with them. Now, it's possible that that's actually what's happening, and it's not preoccupation, but that's a pretty, pretty uh, strong signal of preoccupation. Because what's happening for the preoccupied person is they are very, very interested in closeness because, well, no, actually, uh, what they're very interested in is to not feel bad. And, and they notice distance much more readily than other people do. And they feel the pain of that distance much more intensely. So remember when I was talking about those evolved emotions, when the child is left behind, they have intense anger and fear and hurt and they scream and they signal okay so the preoccupied child learned that in order to get a little bit more attachment needs met you have to scream louder and feel bigger and so uh, they will be very focused on trying to bridge that gap because they're trying to get away from the distress of that uh, feeling of being non-proximal and distant emotionally from other people. Because remember, we evolved to feel distress when we are distant emotionally and physically from others. Preoccupied people were actually chronically distant from people and rejected when they were young, but they learned to cope with that by leaning in and by screaming. And by doing that, people paid a little bit more attention to them. Okay. Uh, preoccupied people tend to have low self-esteem. They sometimes idolize other people. When a relationship is coming to an end, they're more likely to create drama. So the relationship usually ends in a big mess because, again, they're, sig they're feeling it bigger and they're signaling bigger. They are often highly observant of others' emotions because, again, they were very focused on their caregivers to, as a way of trying to game the system. And so they're very intuitive, quote-unquote, very em empathetic. They, they know what other people are feeling much more readily, which can be a pro or a con. They're more likely to lie awake at night worrying about a relationship or something that they said that day. They're more likely to be attracted to irresponsible people, dysfunctional people, or train wrecks because if they can find someone that needs them, then, they're, then they will feel secure. Avoidant people can be like that too, actually. Preoccupied people are more likely to fall in love quickly, even with friends. They're more likely to read your diary without your permission or look over your shoulder when you're texting. They're more likely to be demanding and controlling. Not always, though. They have a harder time making a decision on their own. And they often say to themselves, you know what? I'm too giving. Everyone takes from me. They more, they more than often will say, no one cares about relationships as much as I do. And they might deny their own needs to please other people. To others, they might seem needy or weak or clingy or dependent or unstable, or sensitive, or angry, or volatile, or invasive, or even abusive. Okay, so that's preoccupied. All right, let's go on to disorganized. So think about someone in your life who might be disorganized, or even yourself, as a way of guiding this. So these people are, you know, whenever we've talked about disorganization with Bob, or we've talked about 
borderline, then we're talking, you know, the upper end of borderline is indicative of disorganized attachment. You can also be characterized as preoccupied when you have uh, borderline. But, um, but anyway, so disorganized attachment is characterized by your, as an adult, terrified by loneliness and terrified by closeness. So remember those kids that were, you know, they were stuck between running to home base, their caregivers, but also wanting to want to run away from their caregivers because their caregivers are the danger. The caregivers are both the danger and the secure base. And so as an adult, you obviously have a compulsion, an emotional system that's driving you towards other people. And your emotional system is terrified of other people. But at a, at a fundamental level, you're desperate for attachment, security, and closeness and proximity. And you're stuck between running towards people and running away from them. So these people typically have a really hard time uh, coping with attachment threats. They have a really hard time coping with criticism or distance or rejection. They have very little consistency in their coping style. They're much more prone to suicidality because that's, that's sort of a, a way out for some people. It's like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. They're stuck running away and towards. And so they're like, screw it. Maybe if I just was never born, I wouldn't feel this way. Because again, the whole time, they're in a constant state of distress. People who are disorganized tend to have the most ongoing chronic distress of any of the attachment styles because they're they're terrified, you know. It's like they're uh, they're left alone, they're 2 years old, they're left in the grass, it's 200,000 years, years ago and they can't see their parents and they're they're terrified. And then they see their parents but their parents are a tiger that wants to eat them. <laughs> you know, it's 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 like what do I do? I want to run to my parents, but my parents are trying to eat me. I have nowhere to run. I'm in a constant state of terror. Everything is scary. I, and I'm alone and abandoned, and there's nowhere to run. But I have a feeling like I should have somewhere to run, but there's nowhere to go. I have a feeling like I should run to my loved ones, but they are the tiger. They're the danger. It's just this very constant state of distress and fear and anxiety. And the people have, uh, they will, uh, again, with preoccupied people, they can sometimes, uh, particularly on moderate to mild levels of preoccupation, they'll find a equilibrium and a, and a place in a relationship where they can relax. To the avoidant person, same thing. They can avoid and they can rely on themselves and be self-reliant and get a little bit of closeness to get a little bit of their needs met and stabilize. Disorganized people tend to have no stability in their emotional state. They have no landing place where they can kind of cruise. And so it's a very distressing person. There's usually psychiatric issues, depression, other kinds of issues, complex PT, you know, PTSD, obviously, uh, personality disorders, that kind of thing, drug addiction. So that can look a lot of different ways, by the way. It can look like borderline. It can look like um, other kinds of schemas, but uh, I hope that, by understanding the foundation, you can understand the behavior. All right. So let's go on to secure. So these people, when you ask them, so, okay, so in the adult attachment in, uh, interview, when, when, you're, when you're asking adults 
to describe to you know, when you're trying to figure out adults and their attachment style. When you ask avoidant people, they'll say everything was fine and they won't have very many memories. When you ask preoccupied people, they will remember a lot of bad things. They will say like, "Well, yeah, my dad abandoned me. He was a terrible person. My mom was good sometimes, but other times she was terrible." They'll they'll have a they'll have a lot of memories. Preoccupied people. And it will have a fair amount of negativity to it. To the secure person, to the, to the disorganized person, they'll be similar to preoccupied, by the way. To the secure, but it'll be a little discombobulated. Um, because anyway, uh, it, so disorganized people can describe things in a variety of ways, depending on where they're landing. Um, they might be in a dissociative state and they might say like everything is fine or they might be a highly reactive state where they'll say like my parents were terrible, terrible people. They'll tend to be kind of a, a different presentation depending on what state they're in, the disorganized person. Okay, the secure person, when you ask them about their childhood, the, the general vibe that they'll give across is, yeah, my, 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 this is an example of a secure person answering the question, uh, what was your childhood like regarding your parents and your caregivers? They would be like, well, my parents were pretty great and they were, you know, they were there a lot. But, you know, my mom had some problems. She would get depressed sometimes, but, you know, she did pretty good. And they were loving and my mom, you know, was secure for the most part. My dad worked a lot and I missed him somewhat. But, you know, when he was home, he was real nice and he would play with me a lot. And I felt like I could depend on both my parents really throughout my life. But, you know, my parents, they had some issues and I was kind of a jerk face during this phase. Okay, so you hear the way I'm describing it. There's a lot of details there and it's mostly positive, but there's some negativity in there. So the the deception is the avoidant person will seem secure because the avoidant person says everything was fine. No problems. And it's like, oh, must be secure. But no, the secure person sees the full picture. The secure person recognizes the good and, and can tell that story, but also recognizes occasionally it was bad. That not everyone is 100% good or bad. That people are mostly good in their life, but you know they had some bad qualities. So the secure person will have a more well-rounded description. It'll sound more um, believable. The secure person's like the preoccupied person's narrative will sometimes sound a little overly negative. You'll just be like, whoa. Now it might have been that way, but it might also be a little exaggerated because that's how it feels to the preoccupied person because they learn to amp up their attachment system. To the secure person, it'll sound the most reasonable, the most believable, especially when you understand that parenting usually has at least some problems in it. And the secure people can identify that. So uh, other signs that you'll see from secure people is they'll have better relationships, more satisfaction with their relationships. They will be good in relationships. They enjoy being close to people. They trust others. They have good self-esteem, lower psychopathology. They have a less need for therapy, but they're okay going to therapy. They have less intense transference or countertransference as a therapist or producing countertransference. They manage rejection easier, but, you know, no one manages rejection well, but they reject it easier. They're less prone to odd conspiracy theories. They're better at emotional regulation. They have more emotional intelligence. They're attuned to others more easily. 
they seek support pretty easily. They're, you know, they deal with their dependency in a non-complicated way. When they need something, they reach out. And when they don't, they don't need to. And they're not complicated about it. And they're sure of themselves. They'll just say, you know what? I need this. I need this emotional, you know, this child, this adult, this adult understands their emotional and their attachment system. And they're uncomplicated about it. A, this is why sometimes avoidant people will think they're secure or people will think of them as secure because they seem very independent, right? But underneath that veil of independence, that coping style of independence is a deep, deep ocean of emotion of dependence and hurt and neediness. To the secure person, they're much more in touch with their needs and their attachment reactivity and will take action to meet their attachment needs. So those people will be dependent. Secure people are fine with their dependency for the most part. Now, I want to say that secure people are not always healthy because no one is always healthy. <laughs> secure people are just categorized. At, they're, they're like not insecure. But another way of looking at it is that everyone is attachment insecure because everyone has damage. And what we call secure, they're just the least damaged. <laughs> if that makes sense. That's the kind of the way I see it. Because I've literally never met a person that I would describe as like, oh, that person is 100% secure. I've never met a person like that. I've never met anyone in my life where I would characterize them as like, they're good. They don't need any help. They have no damage. I've never, ever met someone even close to that. <laughs> everyone has damage. Everyone has attachment wounds. And everyone has maladaptive coping to that. It's just a matter of degree. Uh, secure people tend to be more extroverted. They are warmer and more compassionate. They're more open to experience. They're, they're less hostile. They disclose more about themselves. They, are, uh, they have larger support systems. They're better at parent, as parents. They're more committed as a spouse. They're more able to remember positive aspects of their past relationships. They're more likely to respond positively in couples therapy or any kind of therapy. They're more likely to provide consistent memories and judgments of childhood relationships. So when they're describing their childhood relationships, again, it seems more believable and more consistent. They recognize the good and the bad in their parents without much tension about it, and they don't idealize other people, including their parents. Okay. But again, it's all a matter of degree. Secure people are definitely prone to trust issues and other kinds of problems. So just understand that. Like for me, for example, whenever I take tests, I'm usually straddling. I'm usually mostly secure, but definitely have an avoidant side and with a smidgen of preoccupation with no disorganized. So what am I? Do I, do I say I'm secure? Do I say I'm avoidant? Do I say... I'm a little bit of all three. Well, the way I see myself is the way I described it. I'm mostly secure. I'm a little bit avoidant and uh, even a little bit less of preoccup preoccupation depending on the situation, depending on the attachment threat, depending on sort of my relationship situation, what's happening, um, what has been happening recently, what my mood is, all those kinds of things. So when things are going well, people would look at me and go, oh, secure. When things aren't going well, they'd be like, oh, he's avoidant. When things aren't particularly going well, then they go, oh, he's preoccupied. So what am I? Well, you know, I'm a dash of this and a dash of that, depending on the situation. Okay. 
so in the class, this is where I would adjourn, and then I sent everyone home, and then everyone works on their presentations. The presentations that I had people do was that you want to uh, detail the development of your attachment style, you know, how attuned were people were to you growing up. And then you want to talk about your attachment style and all the different signs, you know, how you did in the attachment theory work, workbook. And then I had people present on a recent attachment threat conflict with someone close to them and how they reacted to it. What was the trigger? What was the emotion, the bodily emotion, the, you know, fear, hurt, anger, this kind of thing. And then what was their behavior? What were they compelled to do with those emotions and what did they do? And also, what's the corrective experience that they need to have in order to earn more security moving forward in life? And again, for the avoidant people, they need to learn how to be vulnerable and have and be de- and depend on others. Essentially, cry in other people's arms and be taken care of. To so the preoccupied person, they need a relationship, security, and consistency. And sometimes they need boundaries. And so this is when we get into the therapy of people who have preoccupation. Because preoccupied people, because they want more and more and more of you, because they're trying to run away from their attachment insecurity and and all the distress that they feel, they're trying to get closer and closer. And so they might try to blur the boundaries, which is natural. And as a therapist, you want to be close while having boundaries. You want to be in contact with the preoccupied person to provide a corrective experience, and it needs to be consistent. It needs to be definitely in contact. There needs to be vulnerability from you and authenticity from you as a therapist. But at the same time, you need to push back occasionally. And uh, I mean, push back is a strong word. A better word is be very consistent about the frame of therapy, that you don't go over on your session, that you don't have random emergency sessions very often unless there's suicidality, that you don't self-disclose too much, that you don't become their friend, that you don't let the therapy become about you, that you just become very consistent. Even though the client might be asking for boundaries to be crossed and they might, and it might be tempting to give that to them because you want to provide a corrective experience for them, the more you give in on those boundaries – the more they're going to feel like they need more boundaries to be crossed as evidence that you like them. And when you finally do push back, the clients are going to be devastated because, because it'll feel very much like a rejection. So the key, this is to all the clinicians out there, is to know that when you're treating a preoccupied person, no matter where you draw the line, they're always going to feel abandoned by you because that's their central feature of their ongoing attachment reactivity. As they get closer to people, they're quite convinced that you're abandoning them on a, on a minute-by-minute basis. There's no way to get rid of that. You just have to provide a secure, consistent, dedicated relationship over time, and through that experience, they earn security, and that feeling of abandonment is mitigated over time. You do not want to take a shortcut of trying to solve their feelings of abandonment by giving in on your boundaries because eventually you're going to have to push back and then you're going to really be abandoning them in that moment. So you might as well draw the line in the sand where you're comfortable in advance of problems in the future and just deal with the fact that they're going to feel chronically abandoned by you. And 
recognize that 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 just that's just going to happen. Okay. And to the disorganized person, there's a lot of different approaches, but uh, w- the main core to the the corrective experience is similar to preoccupation, where the relationship, as they get closer, they're going to be terrified. And so you have to do a lot to reassure them and not let them use um, defenses to obscure themselves to the intensity. You know, some disorganized people will talk about their spouse the whole time as a way of avoiding the intensity of the therapeutic relationship. And, you know, as a therapist, you gauge that whether or not they're ready. But in a best case scenario, it's a sort of therapy that Bob talks about with his therapist where he sits there and they, him and his therapist talk explicitly about how they are experiencing closeness and that Bob is experiencing terror as he gets closer to his therapist. And the therapist is very blunt and very open and very okay with the fact that Bob is feeling terror and won't let Bob veer away from that by talking about and by talking about some other meaningless thing or less meaningful thing to the secure person uh because again everyone has attachment injuries a similar kind of thing attunement but there's less need for a robust strategy because the secure person is more malleable and will respond better to therapy regardless of the strategy really because secure people are good at engineering relationships for their needs. They'll they'll tell people what they need, essentially, and signal to other people what they need. So to secure people, oftentimes you just have to listen to what they're telling you. Let them lead the way, essentially. All right. So again, in my class, I would have all these presentations, and you'd hear from other people. So maybe a way to do that in your own life as listeners is – Talk with as many people as you can about their experience with attachment and their attachment style. Because the more you learn about other people's attachment, particularly the other side of the aisle, so to speak, if you're preoccupied, the more you learn about avoidant. And if you're avoidant, the more you learn about preoccupied, the better. Because you're, you're probably really misunderstanding each other. You know, two preoccupied people tend to understand each other. Two avoidant people tend to understand each other. But understanding across the aisle can be really hard. Because to the avoidant person, the preoccupied person is like a drama queen, demanding, hurtful, critical, just kind of like psycho. But that's not true, right? And if you're preoccupied, the avoidant person seems like a robot who doesn't care. But that's not true. And so when you understand where it comes from and you understand the inner life of the avoidant person, you understand the inner life of a disorganized person, it explains all of the behavior you see on the outside and clears up a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of fa- and a lot of couples conflict, a lot of family conflict, a lot of conflict in all arenas, at work, everywhere. When you understand someone's attachment style, it really helps explain the behaviors that you see that might be bothersome to you. All right. Well, it is uh, almost midnight now, and so I should probably adjourn. But let me know how this went because I, you know, I don't know if I should do this again. Uh, I could be a little bit more formal about this. You know, maybe there's other things we can do. Like um, people could organize study groups so they could actually follow along and do the group discussions and stuff. So let me know what you think as patrons. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself and take care of your attachment needs and each other's attachment needs because you deserve it. You really, really do. (laughs) 